Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And today we're going to be speaking with um, an uh, Oakland-born and raised director, uh, Tiffany Little John, who just makes these phenomenal films, like you are the master of the short form. <laughs> They're so powerful, oh, and it's like just when you like can't take it anymore. Particularly, you know, we're thinking about you know the perfect sacrifice and um, mm-hmm. Emmett Till's mother, um, you know, Mamie um, Bradley, who was just like so brave to take the literal covers off her son's face so people could see what happened to her young 14-year-old son when he went to Money, Mississippi. You were just like, wow, what a wonderful work. And I didn't even know that it was a part of San Francisco Black Film Festival. Uh, what year was that? I believe that was in 2016. It was a few years ago. Yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, look at there. I was just looking you up to sign a bio, and I'm like, Oh, look at her. <laughs> I missed it. Um, so anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Right, and you're um, you're an Allen Temple member. I'm like, I was wondering what the connection was there doing that, <laughs> doing the film, yes. you know, celebrating the centennial of that wonderful Bay Area institution. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow, wow. That's it's really wonderful. Where can people um, see the um, uh, the film um, about Allen Temple and uh, celebrating its? Um, I guess I don't know. Does does Reverend um, Doctor J. Alfred Smith does he have the longest tenure um, presently? I believe so. He's currently the pastor emeritus, um, and our new right, senior yes. pastor. Uh, yes, um, um, I, I believe he is the longest tenured. Uh, pastor at Allen Temple. Mhm. Right, right. And I wondered um uh why why you didn't um interview the current um you know pastor. Well you know it was kind of last minute we were trying to get everything together and we couldn't schedule. We ended up filming everything in one day and we couldn't schedule really? Pastor Jackie on that day. 
Yes, we mm. actually filmed, I believe, the 20, that last Saturday in September, and there was this quick turnaround, and the schedules didn't necessarily align, but she's, she, she's really busy. So it ended up mm. working out um, that we were able to get Pastor Emeritus because just given the fact of his presence in East Oakland and throughout the Bay Area for so long, you know, it was, uh, having him a part of it was kind of the main focus, especially with respect to Pastor Jackie and um, you know, because we, we our our intention is to build on that, so that was just kind mm-hmm. of like a a smaller version of what we like to do to document the church's 100 year history. So our goal is to kind of uh, continue filming and include her and other members of the church and, and just make it a larger platform. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, besides being born and raised in Oakland. Um, you uh, you have a Master's of Fine Arts and uh, Cinematography um, from New York Film Academy, um, Los Angeles Master's, Los Angeles? Um, oh, I yes. guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess Los Angeles, um, I don't understand this, Los Angeles Master's of Fine Arts, or what does that mean? Oh, yeah. It was a Master's of Fine Arts in and, there. Um, Oh, sorry, cinematography and filmmaking. The the campus is in Los Angeles. Oh, good. Okay, that makes sense now. Okay, so why is it Los Angeles sitting there all by itself? Okay. <laughs> and um, okay, and then you have a bachelor's of of um, arts in British and American literature um, from Cal State yes. University East Bay in Hayward. So the first one yes. is. Um, uh, the master's since 2015, and um, and then you got, did you get another um, film degree in from, from the New York Film Academy is in the Los yes. Angeles? Um, okay, that was in 2013, yes. and then working our way backwards, we have the 2011 <laughs> bachelor's yes. degree. Yeah, and um, in your accomplishments, you know, we're we're going to be talking about the perfect sacrifice, but. Um, you got the short film award. Uh, you got the Fort short film award nominee at the American Black uh, Film Festival uh, HBO short film competition in 2014, and um, you're also the recipient, or that film is the recipient um, of the best short film award in 2014 um, at the Harlem International Film Festival, and you got the the um, the best film. Student Film Award in 2016 for this film. Oh, this is—is is this your, your master's thesis? Yes, it was. Oh, wow! And so, in 2016, at the San Francisco Black Film Festival, which we mentioned earlier, you also brought home the award. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no one can watch this film and not be moved, right? And it's like, oh, this is <laughs> right. so wonderful—the cinematography, you know, the actors, the the writing, and. Uh, and you got your recipient of the Best Picture Award in 2018 for this film at the um, Action on Film International Film Festival, and uh, it was a uh, your film was a a uh, official selection at SAG AFTRA Foundation Afra. Los Angeles Short uh, Film Showcase in 2017. <laughs> and yes. it has been the official selection in over 14 film festivals from 2014 to 2018. Like, whoa, really? <laughs> yes. 
Wow, awesome, awesome. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about, maybe should we play the, um, maybe tell us a little bit about the film and and how you came to make it because, you know, we think about um, what happened to Emmett Till um, and we think, wow, that was that was back then. You know, why do you want to mm-hmm. make this film now, you know, considering, um, uh, I'm trying to think, um, uh, it was, you know, there was a really, like, the definitive Emmett Till film, <clears throat> you know, was made um, by um, our, um, you know, wonderful director, um, Stanley Nelson. Remember that film? And yes. that was like, yes. whoa, yes. like, why would you want to do anything after that, right? Right, right. <laughs> like, once he puts his signature on something, it's like, okay, we're done, let's move on. And, and right, yet, right. you know, you, you make this film... Like you're you're a younger person, and you're making this film, um, and then this is pre the anti Emmett Till anti lynching act, which just passed. I think it was last last month, um, and you're wondering, we're wondering, like, why would we have an anti lynching statute? Why would it come up right. in 2020? Like, like, aren't we over that? Yeah. So talk about right. you know the reasoning around the film. And and then you know sort of tie it into how you know making it have such currency right now in 2020. You don't have any awards for 2020, but you could start. You could show that film right now, and like this is why, you know, we need to pay attention. Right. So um, the genesis for this film actually started a long time ago. I first heard about it until when I was 11 years old. My older brother, who was an eighth grade student at Montier Middle School, watched Eyes on the Prize in his um, social studies class. We had, and his teacher was very informed and made a point to, even if that wasn't a part of the curriculum, to, to uh, show that film to her students. And after he saw that first, cause I believe the Emmett story was like the first story in that um, series. And after school, he told me about it. He was trying to describe what happened, and it just kind of stuck with me. And from there, I just kind of went and just kept researching him and reading up on him. And this was back in the day when, you know, uh, there wasn't that much access to information, but I found little tidbits here and there and read more. And in reading more on his story, I learned more about his mother and how she fought to, you know, expose what had happened because they tried so very hard to bury this story because when Emmett Till was first, when he first went missing and in Mississippi and his body was found three days later, the sheriff in Mississippi had ordered that he be buried that same day in Mississippi without even informing his mother back in Chicago. But um, one of his relatives who had gone down with him was able to recall his mother. And they, and from in Chicago, they rallied some of the officials down there and had them stop the burial in Money, Mississippi, and have his body sent back to Chicago. But before they did that, they covered his body in lime and placed the seal on the box that he was sent in, and the seal was not to be broken at all. And so when she received the body, the undertaker um, in Chicago, A.A. Uh, Rayner, informed her that she couldn't see, see what was inside and and that's kind of where it started from her saying, you know, I spent all this money to have this box shipped back here, shipped back here. I don't even know what's inside of it. There could be a bunch of bricks in this box. So to me, she truly was a hero because against all odds, she 
made a point to not only, um, I wouldn't even call it breaking the law, but making them open that box and, and then from there seeing how badly damaged and destroyed her son was and bearing that load by putting that in the public's eyes so that people could see what had happened. Because before that, there were two other um, murders in Mississippi. I believe it was um, with the Reverend George, George Lee and Lamar Smith, who had both like blatant murders in broad daylight, both people who were rallying for voting rights. And a year before that, you had Brown versus Board of Education. So there was kind of this groundswell of African-Americans who were trying to push the envelope of integration into schooling and everything and voting. And I believe with Emma Till, that was just the breaking point. And she, so for me, I was just stuck with the fact that one, she bore this load and two, there, there's barely any mention of this in any of our history books. And I credit my brother's teacher, who I then had two years later, who also showed us Eyes and the Prize for informing us, because had we not seen that or had the stories kind of not been like told or passed down to us by our, our grandparents or, and our parents, no one would really know what had happened. So it was something that just kind of stuck with me throughout my life. And then when I got to film school, after my first year, I said, you know what, this is, I knew that this was going to be my thesis film. And so it's just a matter of figuring out how to kind of take all this information and, and, and form it into like this 20 minute story to uh, like the most important parts to create this story that would, you know, be a complete story in itself in 20 minutes, but also inform people, you know, exactly what had happened and how courageous she was at that time to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So um, tell us the name of your teacher um, who, um, you know, started this particular his- history unit with Eyes on the Prize. Her name was Miss Black Carson, and I can't think of her first name, but um, her name was Miss Black Carson, and she taught eighth grade um, social studies history class, and she used to have this rain stick, and whenever the class got a little bit rowdy, she would always turn her rain stick over, and we would hear this flush of this, this sound, and it would always calm us down. But she was mm. just this amazing human being. And um, <clears throat> and so what's interesting is um, in my communications class at Cal State Hayward, we had to give a speech on whatever topic we chose, and of course I chose to do a speech on Emma Till, and my professor at the time, you know, I I always ask the question whenever I talk about him. I always ask, has anyone ever heard of Emmett Till? And there were a few African-American students in my class. And, of course, they had raised their hands, but no one else had. No one else knew who he was. And after the speech, mm-hmm. you know, she said, you know, sometimes I kind of question if I want to continue teaching or not. But hearing stories like this and hearing this always, it, it, it makes me, it reminds me why I do this job. Because she had never heard of him. She was a, she was a professor. Are you serious? So just a, yes. Yes. Oh, my. Was she really yes. young or something or from another country? No, no, no. no. I mean, oh. she was American, um, but she she, oh. she was uh, white. Um, and mm-hmm. also, I, I also will say my freshman history class, um, we had to write a, a, a thesis or, or a summary, rather, on on what our – research paper would be and of course again I chose to do it on Emmett Hill and my Mm -hmm. history teacher asked me to change my subject because the story was too um, sad that she didn't want to read any more about it 
and at so the, the Tiffany wow, at that time really? agreed to it do it, and I changed it. It was she, and she didn't want to read about any more about it, and I changed it. But that's just the growth. Like, had it been me now, of course I would have, you know, said no. I would have, you know, um, contested to her request. But at the time, mm-hmm. it was just so. So you, so you kind of understand how we don't want to confront things. We want to kind of sweep them under the rug. We want to kind of create this sanitized version of history that makes people so comfortable. It's never a comfortable mm-hmm. thing. You know, it's, it's always uncomfortable, but that's kind of how we kind of keep people in boxes or kind of keep things the status quo because we don't really want to confront them. Oh, wow. What a journey. What a journey. My goodness. Um, you know, when I think about um, Emmett Till, um, um, was that 1955 that he was killed? Yes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people say that that was the beginning of the civil rights movement um, because mm-hmm. what happened to him clearly, um, you know, in, in, uh, inspired a lot of um, or was a lot of response uh, actions afterwards because I think you, you write in your film when we're reading, you know, sort of what happened afterwards, I think you said 100,000 people uh, viewed viewed the open casket, viewed the body, and you yes. show people, um, you know, falling out, passing out, um, you know, after after seeing this. And this that was archival footage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so, Emmett Till sort of was the beginning of the civil rights movement. I think about um, Wadada Leo Smith, you know, and his opus on on the uh, the civil rights movement. And he says, you know, he was he was that age that was Emmett Till was his peer, and and mm-hmm. when that happened, it was like everything changed. Um, and so, and for you, you know, like how many years later, <laughs> um, you know, right. hearing the story when you're 11, right? And it stays mm-hmm. with you. Your brother tells you you have the same teacher. You learn about it firsthand, and then you carry it. This is like, you know, something that sort of shapes your life. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the House um, House Resolution? I think that's what HR stands for. Um, Thirty-five Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, um, sort of sponsored by Representative Bobby Rush, um, and uh, I think he's out of out of Virginia. And it was introduced um, January third, two thousand nineteen. And um, I don't know. Did the president ever sign off on it? Um, no, it's so. I believe it passed the House, but not the Senate yet. So it hasn't reached oh. the president's desk yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People should definitely go read it at Congress.gov um, because um, it's uh, it's to amend Title 18 United States Code to specify lynching as a deprivation of civil rights and for other purposes. Um, and it says, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. And uh, and then just to honor, you know, Emmett Till um, and his mother, and I just think about, you know, this is International Women's History Month, and, and you know, you know, your actress who, who sort of embodies this, the energy and the feeling of a mother who, mm-hmm. you know, just two weeks prior to, you know, her son being killed, um, you know, is trying to 
um, just make him know how this is a whole other world there in Mississippi. It's not like Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, step off the sidewalk when a white woman is passing. Don't look. Don't turn around. Keep your head down. You know, practicing how to be subservient. And this boy is free. He's a free boy, right? He's, you know, he's not right. used to like, like, you know, dragging his feet and not speaking his mind. And mm-hmm. and he looks so cute. Tell us about, you know, um, yeah, just sort of what's running through your mind around, you know, your your actors, um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, you sort of, I mean, I don't know how you write so short. It's just you're just so good. And and then some of the language from, you know, I don't know, from the act, you know, in retrospect now that, you know, you wrote, the, you made this film a while ago, and then to have this Emmett Till um, anti-lynching act, I bet it's kind of like an affirmation of how important it is that you carry this story and you still carry this story. Yes. You know, so, as an um, artist, as a scholar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our the lead actress, Nikia Seacrest, um, was just phenomenal in this part. Um, what was amazing in our, during our casting you know, we knew what we were looking for, and when she came into the casting room, she she just came in as Mamie. Um, just her poise, the way she walked in, she, like, embodied that from beginning to end. And um, we had a great time uh, during pre-production just kind of preparing for that. And she, she, she did watch Stanley Nelson's documentary um, and a few other interviews of Mrs. Bradley, we just kind of just talked about, you know, try to kind of put ourselves in that time and understand the enormity of what this was, but also within that, knowing that she, like so many others, was, was a mother who loved her child and wanted him to go on vacation and come back to her in one piece. And uh, so Nakia, to me, um, just embraced all of those things and I also want to mention Tyler Parks, who played Emmett Till, who also mm-hmm. uh, came in. And he, what, what I loved most about the actors is the fact that before they walked in, they had t- taken it upon themselves to really dissect who these people were. And he knew when he came in that Emmett Till had a stutter um, that, that he developed when he was a child. And he came in, and it wasn't written in, in the sides. Um, but he, he had done it during his audition. So it's just like, it's just those little extra uh, steps that actors take, the choices that they make that make them stand out. And when we kind of put everyone together, it was this, this like this cohesive piece and we had the table reading and then we ended up doing, um, uh, we read through everything and it was, it was, it's, it's something to see, uh, something that you kind of create, kind of come to life, but also it's like being in the funeral home. And this is a live working funeral home that we were in. So it was, um, it was a, a feeling of not understanding like what you're creating, but not realizing how, how much it would affect people, if that makes sense. And just mm-hmm. to kind of tie it over to the anti-lynching um, bill that was passed by the House. Now, from my understanding, um, lynching is basically synonymous with conspiracy. Um, mm-hmm. And conspiracy is already a federal law. 
so this bill is just is, is basically saying um, it's it's basically adding on to what already is a law, and um, but with the with the caveat of anyone who conspires. So if, if two or more people conspire to commit a crime or whatever, and whatever that crime is, um, the total would be uh, maybe three or four years in prison. Um, they could be charged up to 10 years, but not more than 10 years. So something like this already sort of exists. And this is kind of adding like an addendum, if, if I'm um, understanding it correctly, to that. But what I want to say is within that, the reality is Carolyn Bryant, the woman who accused Emmett Till of whistling at her and now that we know is a lie, she is still alive. And living in oh, Mississippi, oh, she's still alive. Okay. And hmm. so the thing that when we we make, I feel like this bill is there's some wordplay going on with this because there's something like this that kind of already exists. But what would mm-hmm. really, um, if we're really talking about justice and really seeking to correct uh, the damage that was done. Going, uh, highlighting the fact that this woman who basically created this by lying, and, and, and a few years ago she admitted that she that this was a lie and that he never did actually whistle at her. Because in the beginning of my film it says um, whistling, because that was before we knew that it was it was untrue. So now that we mm-hmm. know that this didn't happen, I feel mm-hmm. like we should take this a step further. And you know we're we're talking about like justice. I'll go back to uh, Medgar Evers. Um, he was murdered in June, I believe it was June 12th or June 13th, 1968, a few hours after President Kennedy had given his speech on uh, civil rights. And he was shot in the back as he had, he had just pulled up to his house and he got out of his car and he was shot in the back by Byron Dela Beckwith and he basically died in front of his wife and his children. Now, Byron Gila Beckwith, there were three trials before he was finally convicted of his murder in 1994, but there were two hung juries before that. So it took almost 30 years before this man was convicted of murder. So in my mind, that's kind of where my focus is, is if we're going to really correct what was done, that there is someone who is still responsible for this, this child's murder, and it would behoove us to act on that as well and not allow that to just kind of go by the wayside, you know, because to aunt, to name this bill in honor of him, to honor him would be to get justice for him, you know. Mm-hmm. So right. that is kind of where my thought process is, is let's, let's, let's take this a step further and go after the person who created this, who started this, who lied initially and, and had this child so, so terribly um, uh, abused and, and harmed in a way that he's not even recognizable to anyone anymore, and his face had to be reconstructed, and there had to the funeral director had to take barb had to take wire to tie his face together, and they had to put a seal on top of his casket to to keep the smell, and because of being to to have been in the water for for three days to be waterlogged to have his body haven't been covered in lime all of those just disgusting things that were done to him. And there's someone who's still alive 
who caused this? Like, that is where my mind is. That's, that's like, where the mm-hmm. focus should be, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then I was just thinking about how um, uh, a lot of the people, the men who, who killed him, uh, tortured him and then killed him, they um, they died, but then one person was left alive, and he, um, I think he was brought into the courtroom on a stretcher, but he was actually sentenced um, to prison. I don't know if he since died. Um, but it's interesting, though, the, you know, the person who started, who cried fire, right, um, mm-hmm. she she was never um, prosecuted. And, no. you know, and she's the one that started everything. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a video of her after, after um, her husband and her brother-in-law were acquitted. And she was asked mm-hmm. how she felt about, you know, everything. And she said, I feel fine. Mm. Mm-hmm. I feel fine. So, so it's, 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 it's something where uh, this sort of thing is still happening in so many ways. In so many ways and you're seeing, you know, like people being uh, abused by uh police under the color of law uh, being stopped for petty or, or, or for nothing and being just seen as the aggressor or I just saw a video um, a, a couple was sitting on a train in New York and someone called and said that someone had a gun and these, these, this man matched the description so they say and pulled him off the train and his girlfriend or this woman he's on a date with with no explanation so it's like you're still kind of there's still remnants of this that are present today. So that's why I feel like this story is still very relevant because one, there's still mm-hmm. justice has yet to be served. So in tying back to this anti-lynching act, I think it is very important, but at times I feel like it may just be more symbolic in a sense, because what are we really, what are we really doing when we have someone who can still, there's justice can still be served but it's not the focus is not necessarily on that. Mhm. Right, right. Yeah. And and we're we're kind of out of time in a minute, but um mm-hmm. I was just wanted to to mention um, you know, Brian Stevenson's um Equal Justice Institute in um Montgomery, um Alabama and um and in his uh, you know, the uh the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. And in the uh, um, the National Memorial, it looks at racial terror killings, and we're talking lynchings. And um, mm-hmm. and then we think about, you know, um, Ida B. Wells, the newspaper woman, and, and, you know, Vanguard activists, who another another great woman, you know, that we should call her name, mm-hmm. you know, during this month, um, you know, outside of this month too, but definitely this month, who was um, yeah. documenting all of these these lynchings, um, and yeah, mm-hmm. and so you know, um, the rope lynchings. You know, people are still putting these nooses in places because you know when when African people of African descent are doing something that they want to stop to terrorize because everybody knows what the, the noose means, right? And right. Um, whether or not you're actually Strung up in a in a noose, or or the lynching takes other forms. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
is um is your film uh, available for people that want to see it um purchase it it will be available online later this year. There are, there are a few final film festivals that we're just waiting to hear back from, and then once that festival circuit is completely over, it'll just it will be available online. Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah. what's your website address? Um, we there is a Facebook page for the Perfect Sacrifice at the moment. Let me just pull that up. It, it's just the perfect sacrifice. At least if you just search that, it will show up. Yes, it's it's so it's, there is a Facebook page. If you just type in it's the perfect sacrifice or the perfect sacrifice, that is our current page for that. And there's also an Instagram page, um, and the website is is uh, coming. Okay, super super. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's been really, really wonderful speaking to you. And also, I want to let people know that you, um, you were the site supervisor for um, that wonderful film about the oratorio um, Martin Luther King Jr. oratorio um, concert that ha- I mean um, contest that happens at um, I don't know if it happens at Skyline, but it's I know it's started by um, uh, teacher um, Awale Makiba. And and so that film is on HBO. Um, what's the film called? Yeah. It's called uh, We Are the Dream, the Kids of the Oakland MLK Oratorical Fest. Yes, okay. it was. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's the 40th. It was the 40th anniversary of the Oratorical Fest, and the, the actual contest took place at Skyline High School. Yes, and it was a film last year, and it premiered um, on February 18th of last month. Yeah, February 18th right. on HBO. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on that, too. Wow, well, my next guest is in the studio, and I didn't get a chance to play um, this little clip, so I'm going to play that. It's only a minute. Elaine, I'll be right with you. And uh, and so <laughs> let's have you on again, you know, when you have other news to share. Uh, Tiffany, it's been a yes, real pleasure. Please. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. You're quite welcome. Okay, okay. bye. Uh, Tiffany? Remember, both. Chicago and Mississippi are two different places. If you have to humble yourself or get on your knees, you do it. It can't be that bad. Go. It's worse. Maybe. Maybe. We're here. Is that my boy? May I see him now, please? I'm not authorized to open the box. It's been sealed and locked by the state of Mississippi. Hey! Boy from Chicago? Yeah, he's born. He ain't got good sense. You don't need no socks. Just put on them shoes. Are you telling me I paid $3,000 to have a box shipped back here that can't be opened? I can assure you. You have a hammer. Excuse me? Because this is Chicago, Mr. Rayner, and if he won't open that box, I will. When I wave goodbye, I never imagined he'd come back to me in Chicago in a pine box. Now they can write all the stories and give all the interviews they want. Will ever truly understand until they see for themselves. So that was a little teaser from the perfect sacrifice. So keep your eyes open on for that. Uh, Tiffany Little John is director. Good morning, Elaine Law. How are you? I'm well. Good morning, Wanda. 
yeah, sorry. I had to put an L on Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us um, to talk about this wonderful exhibition that you co-curated, um, Rosie Lee Tompkins, A Retrospective, which is up through July 19th. And that panel discussion, oh, my God, if we could, like, you know, like people, oh, man, it's too bad those that are listening missed it. Um, is it available anywhere <laughs> for people to watch? You know, um, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we do, we are in the process of um, processing some of the audio and videos. So we're hopeful that um, those who weren't able to make it on Saturday will still have a chance to hear uh, the speakers and presentations. So I'm, I would be very happy to let you all know when that's ready. Oh, that'd be awesome, awesome. And is anything happening um, this weekend um, connected to the exhibition? Um, not this weekend per se, but um, actually today, um, because it is the first Friday of the month, there mm -hmm. are special viewing sessions in one of our study centers on the lower level. Um, and it is an opportunity for visitors to see some other quilts that aren't in the exhibition, but um, mm. it's a chance to see them up close. We'll have one of our terrific staff members uh, available on, on hand to um, show people the backs of quilts, to speak a little mm. bit more in depth about um, Rosie Lee Tompkins' process and her materials. And there is also a special area with um with swatches where people you know here in the gallery and these are artworks so we're not encouraging people to handle the quilts themselves but we do have some sample fabrics where people can have a more tactile experience and so there is a session today happening at noon um mm. and other sessions will happen on the third friday of every month and i believe that's at four o'clock oh nice so so the first friday and um, each each month as well as the third Friday of each month. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's really yeah. nice. Yeah, and I would that's encourage um, visitors um, to come to, uh, just to visit the website. We have um, a whole host of um, art studio and gallery workshops that are really great for kids as well, kids and adults to come um, that are that are just, you know, artist-hosted activities that use the idea of quilting and piecing as, um, as a basis for uh, further artistic explorations. And so all of those are listed on our website, too. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, and you are um, the Andrew W. Mellon um, Postdoctoral Curatorial Fellow um, at BAM PFA, and your writings have appeared in uh, Panorama, Journal of the Association of Historians of American Art, Rutledge Companion to African American Art History, and Studies in the History of Art. Um, support from the Center for Advanced Study in Visual Arts National Gallery of Art, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum has furthered your research on topics that include the intersection of folkways and vernacular culture and modern, modernist art histories, African-American art history and American material and visual culture. And um, tell us about how um, this particular um, work, Rosie Lee Tompkins' um, you know, collection um, that was um, a gift from, to the museum you know, from um, the collector, um, 
um, uh, Eli Leon, um, mm-hmm. and that this is the largest uh, exhibition of her work to date. Um, and yet, uh, BAM PFA also, um, I think it was 1997, I believe, also um, <laughs> when she was alive, um, you know, curated uh, her work. So, you know, you're almost like sort of, it's like a home, old homecoming, right? Having this Absolutely. work. <laughs> yeah. So if you could maybe talk about just sort of the impact on your your um, you know, just your your life, your work as a curator, because this is what you do, and and you are, you know, an expert in material material culture. So to have this kind of work, you know, to be able to, um, I guess, to work through and and to be able to make into this marvelous ex- exhibition with your co-curators, it is just simply phenomenal. How did that affect you personally? Oh. Thank you for that question. You know, it's been a tremendous opportunity, really, to um, to build on some of my own research background, um, but to do it in a new forum. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was in graduate school and in training to actually be um, a university professor. My goal was to teach. And at that time, you know, I was writing my... Um, my doctoral thesis, and my research was on the artist Sister Gertrude Morgan. Some of your listeners might know about her, but chances are maybe not. She was a New Orleans-based holiness and sanctified preacher, African-American woman, who heard the call very late in life, um, and that's a spiritual call, uh, to paint. And she was a deeply religious woman and saw her art as, um, as an instrument of her evangelical ministry. So I had always been very interested in artists who sort of came to the attention of the modern art world through very unconventional paths. Um, you know, today we tend to, you, some, of, some people might hear the phrase self-taught artist um, to describe some of this unconventional teaching and training. Um, so I was very accustomed to thinking through a lot of the issues of cross-cultural exchange, the impact that race and gender often has in framing an artist who never went to art school. So I had always been wrestling with a lot of these issues. So when I came to the Berkeley Art Museum, I was, um, I guess you could say that research was ongoing, but when Larry Vinder, my director and co-curator on the Tompkins show, approached me about Rosie Lee Tompkins, I was almost astounded at how almost perfect a parallel Tompkins' life was to uh, Gertrude Morgan's. Um, I think for the reason, you know, here's an artist, this is Tompkins now, who, um, you know, her training as a quilter, you know, is happening outside of the traditional art school channels. She did not have a master's of fine arts um, from what we know did not really interact actively with other quilters and artists in the area. Um, But here was somebody who was clearly committed and dedicated to her and was creating these tremendously gorgeous, aesthetically complicated artworks. And so, um, 
you know, so a lot of my initial background and the same questions I was asking in these earlier projects um, seem to really apply in thinking about Tompkins and especially the role of Eli Leon as a collector. You know, how is it that one particular individual could also have so much impact in framing how we understand an artist who really had no, you know, um, early interest in becoming a famous artist. Um, and so I think, so a lot of the issues were familiar. I'd say what was new for me was really learning from Larry about how to present the work in an art space to make it really shine and look its best um, in a three-dimensional kind of experience. And so I'd say I was really stretched in that sense um, in knowing how to group things together, um, in knowing how to kind of anticipate a visitor's pathway through the space in a way that could really, um, you know, build as as a visitor would walk through. So, um, so I think as a young curator, that has been really instrumental for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really beautiful. Um, and you sort of think about the different, you know, textures of, of the fabric and and just, you know, sort of looking at the different periods, the way you all sort of, you know, decide, you know, decided to put it, group different uh, works together. And uh, and then even having, um, you know, these, these um, like, um, I don't know what you call them, but you know, in the showcase where you have these, um, these, um, they're not quilts, um, but they are sort of mixed media sculpted pieces. Oh, that's right. Yes, um, the case, the the, the objects mm-hmm. inside the beneath the glass case, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> and then you know when um, you know um, Rosalie Tompkins. Um, which is a pseudonym, Son. Sonny talks about um, how, you know, his mother um, would make pillows out of fur, and you know, and she would sell them at the flea market. And you know, she, you know, was working as a um, um, a uh, practical nurse, but ended up being able to like, you know, make her art, her art support her family full time because mm-hmm. she didn't have time to do both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just sort of the evolution of of her, you know, the material culture, you know, the material artistry that she was able to, um, you know, refine. Absolutely, and and I think you can almost connect to the dots, you know, when you first walk into the show and that first gallery. These are large quilts already that she's making by the time it's the 1980s, at least. 10 feet tall. <laughs> so you have a sense of, as you just mentioned, this this evolution now knowing her background is sort of making smaller pieces, but then certainly by the time um, Eli Leon is beginning to collect from her, she's really almost full-fledged in a way. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you write a really wonderful, you know, introductory to um to this wonderful, you know, phenomenal woman who we know through this work, and and we learn a lot about her, you know, from the work, particularly if you can unpack the symbolism. <laughs> and and I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about her, particularly, um, 
you know, the pseudonym and and the whole idea, notion of privacy. Um, um, but maybe, you know, maybe she just didn't want, you know, the personal to distract from, you know, maybe the work, like instead of, you know, how people say, well, my, my work can stand for itself. You don't need to necessarily know about me. But I was also thinking about, you know, sort of the whole idea of, of DNA and 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 how we we carry certain things from from our ancestors from the people that were around from community and and her mother quilted and she's from Arkansas right and mm-hmm. and then we talk about you know Gertrude Morgan you know from New Orleans from Louisiana and we're you know the person right before you you know we were talking about money Mississippi where Emmett Till was brutally you know murdered and and the whole idea of the civil rights movement and about codes and about, you know, slave codes and about, you know, the Big Dipper and about, you know, the the great migration. It wasn't because people wanted to come to California because it was beautiful here and the weather was nicer. It was because of what was happening in the South around civil rights and human rights. So then we think about this material culture, how do we tell the story in a way that, we could tell the story, right? Because you can't write it necessarily. You might get run out of town, like Ida B. Wells. You know, you know there was a there was a bounty on her head. She kept on having to move from one city state to another because they were gonna kill her. You know, she was a mm-hmm. newspaper woman. So then, how do you tell the story of her of our people? You know, I'm talking about people of African descent. You know, you 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 couch it within a quilt, maybe, or in a painting. <laughs> you know, like that was heck of smart, or a song, mm-hmm. right? Mhm. Yeah, no, that's a terrific question and thank you so much for raising that um that particular biographical angle. You know, I um much of what we know about Rosie Lee Tompkins and her privacy and her reservedness, you know, we've been talking about it so far in terms of just her personality, right? As you heard Sammy talked about it on Saturday at the symposium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eli Leon sort of very <clears throat> repeatedly would refer to it um, in his writing. And, um, but yeah, to really probe a little bit deeper, you know, I, I can only speculate as to, as to why. Um, I mean, I think there are certain aspects of her, of her art, especially in that final gallery where you see um the role of family take on a much more prominent role, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, she's um, taking different patterns and different designs and commemorating family members, right? She's um, acknowledging their birth dates, working into her design, um, either their age. And you, you think, you know, there has to be some kind of memory of that person driving that, those actions. Um, or even the three sixes pattern, um, and this is a pattern where she's taken three colors, the yellow, the orange, and the purple, and have made them all symbolic of individuals who all share the number six in their birth dates. And, um, you know, and you mentioned ancestors, and certainly her grandfather is always a part of that group. Um, and she grew up in the household of her grandfather in Arkansas. Um, and he was born right before, no, pardon me, right after emancipation. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think there's no doubt that the story of 
um, racial oppression of Jim Crow is always in the background of everything, you know, as, as you said, that I think that has to be almost 80% of the reason that she left Arkansas in the first place. Um, and so that, that distance, um, that condition of migration that was so much a part of her life, that was her reason for coming to California, um, I think was, was huge in, I think, her taking up quilting as a way to reaffirm family ties when they couldn't be physically present. Um, it was a way to reaffirm family ties um, across time. There's this really wonderful story, actually, in um, some of the notes that I uncovered, where there's a quilt made exclusively of red and black velvet. Um, and, you know, it, it looks very abstract when you come across it. But in the notes, um, Eli Leon recorded her as saying, this is how she introduced her grandfather and a brother together. Um, and so the colors and and even even though it might not be obvious in the design, but the colors themselves and the act of joining them together was a way of connecting family members over time and over geographical space, which I find extraordinarily beautiful. Um, and it's also not obvious, right? It's very much in keeping with her personality. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if only she were still, Rosie Lee Tompkins were still with us, maybe she might be more inclined to say a little bit more. But I think until then, we just sort of have these very tantalizing bits and pieces that have been recorded. Um, to sort of help us wonder about, you know, how she's, how she's using her quilting as a way to really um, connect a family that is part of the diaspora, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk a little bit about, um, about her life, you know, in Richmond, um, you know, um, as, you know, as, as, you know, um, Effie, um, Effie, is it Effie Lee Howard? Um, I'm trying to remember. Effie May Howard, yeah. Effie May Howard, right, right. Yeah, yeah, mother. Um, and uh, she, you know, um, her son, um, you know, Sammy, um, he was the elder son of, you know, of, of younger, a lot younger siblings, so that he was able to even help his mother. And he mentioned um, in the panel that they kind of, grew up together because I believe he said she was 17 um, when when she had him. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, from what I have been able to piece together of her life in Richmond, as you said, she comes, she arrives to, in California in the East Bay in 1958. Um, she, at that point, she's a 22-year-old young woman um, making her way and you know, I have to think, you know, many of your visitors will have a more vivid memory of Richmond and Oakland during that time than I. Um, but, you know, she takes advantage of the community colleges offered and the classes offered to her. So that's how she gets her training to be a nurse. Um, she marries and um, has a family and is raising them in Richmond. Um, and you know, I think Richmond having been that really busy World War II port with the Kaiser shipyards, you know, 
by the 1950s and 60s has already attracted um, hundreds of thousands of African-American migrants um, seeking jobs. And um, predictably, I think many other friends and family are following in their footsteps as well. Um, in my research, I was, um, you know, it was interesting to learn that over 300,000 African-Americans from Arkansas end up settling in, um, uh, in, in the Bay Area. And so to think that, yes, you have this whole network of, um, of individuals coming from the same region, and you imagine sort of the kind of culture that becomes transplanted here, it's a really, um, it, it makes sense insofar as some of the, the way that Richmond is developing as a city during that time. Um, and then I think I think about Richmond too as you know connected to um, to Oakland to Berkeley to San Francisco. Um, I'll need a little help in thinking when the BART actually gets set up and kicked in, but you know it's become you know it's this interconnected place. Um, and so the idea that you have a lot of thrift stores and secondhand shops and flea markets too, and these are all places where Tompkins would go to find her materials, you know, it's a very different, different set of, um, a different kind of landscape than she would have had, had she stayed in Gould, Arkansas, I think. Um, and so those are some of the key aspects that I've been thinking about Richmond um, in relationship to her art. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, in our in our closing um, few minutes, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the work, you know, that, well, I know you probably have a whole lot of favorites, but um, <laughs> some uh-huh. of the work that, um, you know, you really want people to pay attention to when they go, don't miss this one. And uh, and then some of the ones, like when we were walking through, um, you know, you were so kind um, to take me through, um, and we were just chatting about some, you were wondering about sort of, you know the thinking and the and the and the aesthetic reasoning around certain juxtaposition of images, um, because you know we see T-shirts, you know, um, you know we see you know in the one piece, um, you know there there's um, O.J. Simpson and there's um, uh, the um, um, Magic Johnson and there's. Minister Farrakhan and Muhammad Ali, <laughs> all in the same one, <laughs> all in the same um, uh, quilt. And, That's um, right. Yeah, so juxtapositioning these interesting, and Rodney King, okay. Yeah, and so the juxtaposition these these moments, because they didn't all happen at the same time, but they were, and these people, you know, um, sort of iconic around certain kinds of, of of thinking and certain kinds of politics all in one, and then she has these words, right? Oh, and Nelson Mandela too is in that one. <laughs> That's yes, yes, yes. They're all there. <laughs> <laughs> mhm. Yeah. What's that one yeah. called? Um, you know, so there is no title for it, you know, because okay. we don't know of any formal titles that she gave. But you know, just as a shorthand, um, the people at the museum have just come to call it the OJ quilt. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but yes, but 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 you're absolutely right. That is one one of the quilts that um, you sort of see Rosie Lee Tompkins and you know kind of really working through a lot of issues related to black masculinity. I mean, it's it's probably the most 
um, racially. Uh, and so I would definitely um, encourage visitors to sit with that one for a while and take some time with it. Um, I think um, you mentioned other quilts that I, I would encourage visitors to look at some more. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think absolutely um, some of the the, the, vel- the large velvet ones, I mean, they, they are really, they're the kind of quilts that I'd say you really need to see them in person. So much gets lost, you know, on image, in photographs, on Instagram, on, um, you know, just digital, digital images, just because velvet is such a tricky fabric to kind of get right. <laughs> and, and even the idea of getting velvet right, I think, is, might be a little bit of the wrong approach. I think you just need to see it up close for yourself just to get a sense for how it's, it's almost like a jewel in a way because, velvet interacts with light so differently. So I, I would mm. say, you know, and I'd hesitate to pick my favorite just because they all do so many different things. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there are some that have wonderful, like, glitter on their surface. They have, there are some of the velvet works that have um, velveteen animal print on them. And there are others that have all different kinds of velvet with different textures. And so. Um, yeah, in the same way that you would stand in front of a painting, I would um, invite visitors just to come sit in front of one or two, maybe even the whole room, and uh, really kind of take in how she's matching things together and arranging them. Um, and then finally, I would say, you know, just a personal favorite, and it's probably obvious because it's the artwork that's on the cover of the catalog, is um, <laughs> a small, it's a small yo-yo wall hanging. Um, and by yo-yos, it's a, yo-yos are a traditional quilting technique where there are little rounds of fabric um, that are sort of, um, they're typically sewn together. But in Tompkins' case, she's just sewn them onto a, a bright green backing. Um, and I just love that one because I think it is so personal. It's personal, but it's so um, joyous as well because the colors are just, they just kind of, bounce off that green it's so it's cheerful um but it's also as i said it's personal it almost seems like a self-portrait in a way because each of the yo-yos stand for a year of her life during the time of her making and so i think it just invites you to really um understand her love of color but also her own approach in thinking about how she wanted to represent herself Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and when we think about, you know, sort of uh, practical, um, you know, sort of thinking about women, you know, just sewing and and making, you know, cover for their beds or cover for the windows or, or, or one's body or their family's bodies, you know, but it's art. It's like so beautiful, you know. Sort of like, oh wow, this is so lovely, and and so we have the term craft, uh, and then we have the term fine art, and and I was just wondering, you know, sort of like, you know, um, museum of the caliber of the Berkeley Art Museum, the film archive, and mm-hmm. and to sort of um, uh, not have a hierarchy around beauty, <laughs> um, and around around you know, um, sort of the work of artists, whether that's material or intellectual <laughs> or in other other kinds of ways of making art. You know, it could be film, um, which is, 
you know, not intangible, but it's a different kind of medium, right? And I'm just wondering, you know, as a scholar, you know, sort of looking at that, because I think about my daughter, she went to the California College of now Arts, and they dropped craft. And when she graduated in 2004, it was the last year where you could choose to be a graduate of California College of Arts and Crafts as opposed to just arts. And and it is sort of like really, I'm like, wow, really you're going to differentiate between craft and fine art? I mean, you know, like what? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, and then you talked about how, you know, the presentation is, is so important because, you know, you could just throw that, throw throw something out and, it, you know, like, and then you would think it's nothing. But then the way the staging is real important, so the way you stage it, it shows the it shows the regard and the appreciation for the object, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, and you know, sort of in our closing comments, and 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 you know, that's it's so important, you know, whether it's a quilt or whether it's a person, right? <laughs> absolutely, yes, absolutely, and I think um, I think you hit the nail right on the head, right? The way we label things, absolutely, <clears throat> it speaks volumes to how. Um, the person doing the naming thinks about the object or the individual. Um, and, I, and what I, so, which is to say, so what I loved about, um, or what I appreciate about our installation at Bamfa is, yeah, there is a sort of regard that we want to treat it as we would, we want to treat her quilt as we made a painting in a way, in the sense of giving it the aesthetic regard, the visual spotlight, and the same sort of treatment um, as you would a piece of quote-unquote fine art, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, we can admit that her quilts are really different too. You know, they're not paintings. Um, and so I think it's sort of walking that fine line, you know, traditionally in that gallery, in that gallery, that main gallery space, it has been the realm of fine art. And so then to think about, well, what does it mean to have something really different but uh, but so visually stimulating and spectacular occupy that space. I, I, I hope that visitors will chew on that difference also. Um, it's different, but just in a different, of a different um, sort, right? I mean, as I, I, I really appreciate your comparison. Um, I think there is a parallel to be made with, with individuals too, right? You know, we all have mm-hmm. different experiences, different kinds of training, different values and histories that impact us. But at the end of the day, we all are, we all have our own dignity <laughs> and our own reasons for being understood and valued and asked about. And so my hope is that, you know, there there will be that kind of um, sensitivity, I think, to the objects too. Um, I think the difference between craft and art, you know, sometimes as a scholar and a curator, it really only matters when you're looking for a book sometimes, you know, (laughs) when you're in the card catalog or like online doing a search, you know, some of these categories still, um, they still matter in that sense. That's how you find things. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, not, not to disregard it completely, you know, each of these, um, Labels, as I, you know, have their own history, uh, their own history of the dialogue and the discourse. And so um, I don't think we should forget that sometimes art and craft have been used to really set a hierarchy 
um, you know, and that's something we shouldn't forget. But I think in the ways that we talk about them today, um, if we can sort of equalize the playing field and acknowledge what those differences are when they matter, like training or like tradition, um, I think that will only help us understand everything that much more richly. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm so happy that you were able to fit us into your busy, busy schedule. And um, I don't know if you want to announce it on the air, but I hope um, what I'm going to announce is since I already started. Um, you know, <laughs> you know. Good luck on your on your on your childbirth. You know, bringing your new one into the world because um, I think it's happening in a day or like a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh day gosh. Now? Thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Um. Any day now. Any day now. Cool. <laughs> wow, wow. That's gonna be that's another that's another artwork, right? <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. It absolutely will be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, wow. Well good luck on everything and look forward to um seeing pictures uh <laughs> um, you know, in various social media platforms and uh, you could maybe just send me a link so I could look myself. And yeah, and uh looking forward to um to reading um you know more of your work around um around Gertrude Morgan. I definitely want to learn more about her because I told you that I am from New Orleans, so I want to read about this woman and her work. <laughs> that would be wonderful. That would be an honor. <clears throat> um, Wanda, thank you so much for this invitation. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, you're you're quite welcome, and thank you so much for your work with the other curators, and you know presenting Rosie Lee Tompkins, a retrospective in in such in such a wonderful way, and I'm so happy it's going to be there, at um, Bamfa, you know through July. That is so awesome. Absolutely, there is a lot of time. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> All right, you take good care. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. You're welcome. Bye. Peace and blessings. Good morning, Kelly. How are you? It's been a minute. I'm wonderful. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. You answered your phone while you were in class. I'm I'm like, wow. That that was so kind of you. <laughs> no problem. I hope you didn't get in trouble. <laughs> no. It was like, what big things are you about to do? Because you only did this last semester when something big was about to happen. I was like, sorry, sorry, and he did that. It was sign language class, so he did that in front of the whole class, and you oh. know, made a whole conversation as an example. So thanks, not so fun, oh. but you know, I, luckily I understood everything <laughs> you were saying. <laughs> oh, okay, super. Are you at um? Are you at Berkeley City College? Uh, no, um, just uh, San Francisco City College right now. Oh, San Francisco City. Oh, they have a um uh, American Sign Language class there. Yes, it's pretty amazing. Oh, good for you. That's good. That's that's a great great language to learn. Um not not enough of us, you know, are know that language and there are a lot of uh, people that are hard of hearing or deaf that have to read our lips, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> too much uh, work for that's them. my problem. Mm-hmm. It's it yeah, mm-hmm. it's I'm uh, hard of hearing and eventually oh. it's going to go completely, so I got to be prepared. Oh, okay, okay. Wow, wow, Kelly. So Kelly Savage um, is joining us today to talk about the drop 
LWAP, or Life Without Parole, rally at California State Capitol on Monday, this coming Monday, March 9th. And um, she is the Drop LWAP coordinator for California Coalition for Women Prisoners. A 46-year-old white woman, Kelly, was just recently released after 23 years of incarceration. Governor Jerry Brown commuted her Life Without Parole sentence in December 2017, allowing her a chance for a parole hearing. In November 2018, Kelly was finally released. She has experienced the shattering effects of both domestic violence and incarceration, in which she survived the impact on her mind and spirit. She was inside an inside member of CCWP for over 15 years and helped initiate first the Living Chance Storytelling Project and then the Drop LWAP campaign. So, again, welcome, welcome, Kelly, um, to the show. And you're now working firsthand with survivors of both domestic violence and incarceration, and you are connecting with other formerly incarcerated women and men and networking with social justice organizations around the state to expand the Drop LWAP campaign. And um, and we're not going to read any more of the bio because you're right here with us. And uh, so, <laughs> so why don't you start first with telling us about you know Monday, you know the logistics, like how are there any any is there any transportation like buses or carpools going to Sacramento from the East Bay or Bay or San Francisco Bay Area? Oh, actually, from everywhere. Um, oh, good. We good. even have people coming from out of state. And so basically as people connect with us, we're getting with our travel team because she's basically mm-hmm. a team of one but uh, but mighty. And um, so our <laughs> intent is to have as many people um, have access, like to leave at different times, um, access when it comes to, you know, we've got one individual who needs to worry about doing childcare beforehand. So their transportation leaving a little bit later to make sure that the babysitter, uh, you know, has enough time to get there. So like really making sure that we consider the families and what they need in this process, because the truth is most families are silenced during court proceedings and, and during, you know, the criminal part of incarceration, whether that person is, you know, just trying to struggle through it emotionally or has support, we want to make sure that we give them the best opportunity to be able to represent their loved one. And so um, we're we're very blessed to have um, several different people offer um, assistance, as well as if they chose to do bus or whatever work. Or, you know, even uh, there's a few that had to fly out um, so that they could still make other commitments and and making sure to provide that as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about, gosh, um, um, you know, being in prison for 23 years. God, that's a long time. Some people are not even 23 years old. And and then to, um, you know, sort of, you know, explain to our audience how, you know, when you have life without the possibility of parole, that means that you don't go before the parole hearing. Like you don't, you just like, what do they call that? Um, it's it's not um, an execution, it's but it's a, slow, it's a slow death. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. right, it right. Is definitely. And so as someone who is serving life without, 
um, the belief is that we need to um, CDCR and um, what that you know is is supposed to be built on is rehabilitation. And with that, if you have somebody who is serving life without, they're the last person to receive any services. And um, when you have a sentence like that and you're trying to just change and grow or, or even, you know, have some healing on your own or in order to benefit your community, you can't receive the same services as somebody else. You're um, told that, you know, you need to make space for someone who is about to leave the, the system um, first, and then it goes to a lifer. So um, if somebody is trying to get that healing, it's very difficult to obtain it. With that, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, loss of hope and the ability that, you know, my life isn't worth anything because I'm not even able to get the basic care that the person sitting next to me is able to receive. And and sometimes you've even got those individuals who don't take advantage of it. And you're like, I, I want that opportunity or I need that opportunity. You know, I, I know that I have some issues I need to address and you can't. Um, uh, with that sentence, it's really difficult to hold on to the belief that hope is out there and that I am going to have something different or I even deserve something more which is really difficult um, when, you know, trying to motivate people to um, to engage, whether it's, you know, just in life in general, something as serious as, as your, you know, your community and, and your living space. Because if we don't um, give them a, just a little bit, a glimmer of, of what hope looks like, you know, they're stuck stagnant. And no one, every single person is redeemable. No one deserves to be stuck in a pattern of absolute nothingness. And and that's what happens a lot with, with some of the individuals who just don't believe change is coming. Um, you know, they've heard it for so long. And so this campaign has given them an opportunity to look, um, you know, at hope in a different way. And so that feels really empowering to hear people say, like, you know, I've heard a lot of, of you know, people throwing around at some point, you know, things are going to change, but I'm actually seeing that difference with the coalition um, because their voices are being heard for the first time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, um Tell us about your about your um you know your work at the California uh, Coalition for Women Prisoners and and tell us a little bit about that organization, both inside and outside. And uh, this is a big year for um, the Fire Inside the newsletter, right? Yeah, well, for the organization as a whole, it's a really big year. It's our 25th year. Um, we are the only organization that continues to um, provide consistent support inside um, for legal visits. We are able to go in and kind of address different issues, whether it be medical, um, you know, uh, some support legally, um, attempting to, you know, help with 1170D, which is a felony murder, and um, uh, the 
the different types of, of policies and changes and laws that are coming down right now are very difficult to understand. And so we go in as many different teams to educate or to support, help um, write documents, you know, try to get people to understand the legal process. And with that, a lot of medical stuff takes place because there's a lot of needs that, you know, people don't know how to present themselves, you know, clearly. And so they need some support around that. And so um, we, um, as an organization, take the go in and, and work with them. Um, hopefully most months, hopefully it's about two or three visits per institution. Um, um, we both go to CIW and CCWF, which is um, um, down in Corona and in Chowchilla. And so having that opportunity to have support and someone come in and actually help um, really helped in a, in a situation where we knew that there was individuals who needed um, support but were unable to receive it when I was inside. So I would connect them with, with the staff from uh, CCWP, different staff at different times because most are all volunteers. Um, which is also really amazing to know that there are so many individuals that are dedicated to um, change and growth and ending mass incarceration that they take out their time to to go inside as well as writing letters, um, working on different um, policies and, and bills that are really important. Um, there are several um, things that we're working on right now. The sterilization bill is one that really stands out because while incarcerated, um, trying to fight what it looked like um, to get medical care when it came to female um, anatomy, it was really difficult to receive care, let alone decent care. Um, one of the things that I always try to remind the coalition about is the support they had around having the privacy to have your medical appointment um, only be you and the doctor in the room or the doctor and the nurse, not a second, um, another individual that is also incarcerated in the room with just a sheet in between you so they could hear all of your medical concerns. When it's mm -hmm. coming to um, that privacy, uh, we didn't have that. And so that was really important and one of the things that CCWP um, fought for. And so now they're you know, adding a new component of um, the sterilization bill and supporting in that. But there's a lot of just little um, things that come when it comes to medical. Somebody who has a broken arm who can't get the support and, and resources to get that cast taken off. And so people from California Coalition, uh, one of the prisoners, have taken the opportunity to then contact the institution because that person didn't have a loved one that could call on their behalf. And, and so those are just a little bit of the things that, that I worked on with um, the team while inside. I worked for um, 15 years with the, um, the entire organization. And then once I got out, um, knowing that they were, of course, just starting the Drop OWAP campaign, I, I didn't realize, I knew I pushed a lot. Um, to be involved, but I didn't realize that um, I helped 
create that movement to get them to want to do the storytelling and the campaign to drop L up as a whole. I just knew that my voice was loud and I wanted to make a difference and I knew that LWAPs were not being addressed um, and were not being supported at that time. Right, right. Yeah, the um, uh, the California Coalition for Women Prisoners Office is a part of the, the Movement Center um, at 4400 um, Market Street in, in Oakland. Yes. Right. And why don't you give the phone number there and email address so people can be in touch with you. Okay, wonderful. Um, So our phone number is 415-255-7036, and the extension is 304. And if you contact um, uh, Kelly at um, womenprisoners.org, um, we'll have an opportunity to you know, engage one-on-one. It gives um, us an opportunity to to, to uh, speak with more community members. And, you know, a lot of them are just trying to figure out how to support or, how, you know, even how to support their loved ones that are inside. So that's a lot of the phone calls I get is about, you know, what can I do? I'm only one person, and every single voice matters. And the biggest thing is contacting somebody inside and just saying, you know, your life matters, you matter, and we want to hear from you. So a major thing. Yeah. So, again, you said 415-255-7086, extension um, 304. Did I say it right? Um, uh, 255 Okay. All right. Yes. And and Kelly is a K E L L Y? Yes. At womenprisoners.org. And the website is also um womenprisoners.org. So you can find out about the monthly meeting which is coming up this Wednesday, right? Uh no, it just happened last Wednesday. The first one oh, last week. First so Wednesday. The, okay. Yeah, so the next yes. Yeah. So the next one will be April first. April first. Oh, okay. April first. Alrighty. And what time is that? Um, at six thirty. Six thirty. And again, that's at the Movement Center, forty four hundred um, Market Street. And tomorrow, um, there's going to be um, at the Movement Center the first of a series of um, of workshops or community um, gatherings looking at at trauma. And that's going to be. Um, uh, the Family Unity Project. Do you know anything about that? Yes, uh, they're, um, they're really starting off strong to 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 give some support and um, education around what trauma looks like and where um, where a lot of us don't understand or um, even accept that the trauma that we've experienced not only affects ourselves but our loved ones as well. It's not that people want to stay blinded to it. It's the hurt they know, you know, trauma causes. Um, It's easy to ignore when you're just moving on, you know, with your daily life. And so this is kind of taking a step back and and really looking at it and seeing how you can 
may change, you know, how you can have that healing in, you know, in everyday situations, not just, okay, so I just dealt with something traumatic and so that's the only reason I'm taking a, you know, a step to, to look at, at my experiences, but actually in everyday life, realizing that we do things every day that, you know, we, we bypass and, and we accept things that are happening around us. And the truth is our body is responding to them. And so they're going to take an opportunity to really dive deep and, and give, you know, themselves an opportunity for some healing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I hope yeah. people are and that's Yeah, and that's first Fridays of the month, beginning this Friday, tomorrow. Oh, no, actually today, March 6th. <laughs> I forgot today was Friday. Wow. Yeah. Um, from 6 to 7.30, and dinner and child care will be provided, and uh, all caregivers, teens, and spouses of incarcerated loved ones and formerly incarcerated fellows are invited to the gathering. Um, and so... Um, you know, people should should you know should come you know and show up, and uh, and so you mentioned uh, some legislation that um, you all were looking at because um, I know the um, um, quest for democracy um, uh, rally is in May, um, but in the meantime, what what kind of legislation are you looking at around um, you know drop LWAP and other other um, legislation that's directly um, connected to um, to freeing women from incarceration so, and keeping women from being incarcerated. So, yeah, definitely keeping them from being incarcerated. Right now we're, uh, we're looking at a resolution instead of some legislation around drop a mm-hmm. There's a lot of education that needs to take place. Legislators just really are not aware of just how much um, and just how um, – Difficult LWAP is. Uh, the belief system was they ended felony murder, which did not take place. The belief was that it did, and so they're like, no, we, you know, we resolve these issues, and and they are able to do things. They're not treated any differently than anyone else. And the truth and the real experiences, they are treated less than, and they aren't given opportunities to even provide financially for themselves because. They're excluded from the jobs that actually, you know, take some effort and, and give the uh, the person the ability to, to maintain their own self-dignity and self-respect and, and provide for themselves. Um, and they, the legislation um, as a whole doesn't realize that just um, how difficult felony murder has become and how difficult it is to fight that system. They put um, practices in place to start a process of looking at felony murder and looking at how somebody is incarcerated. Our LWAP population is um, a a very high extreme number at uh, 5,212. Most individuals are um, uh, black and brown individuals. They're also the average age of somebody incarcerated is 19 years old. And mm-hmm. because the youth offender bill does only applies to people under the age of 18, um, even though your crime is similar to, to someone else that has, you know, uh, 25 to life, a person that has LWAP 
their brain develops in the same manner as as the you know kids sitting in a high school classroom or just starting college, but because they have an LWOP sentence, they're excluded from the opportunity to look at that brain development and look at the responses of trauma and 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 how um, they you know don't understand the complete consequences of of every choice that they make and um, just because the DA chose to to fight for this sentence, whether it was, you know, based on the crime itself or political ambitions for that um, um, public defender, district attorney, and, you know, that whole process of um, incarceration. When you look at that, um, that person is no different than the person five to life. They just are charged differently, and their brain is not developing any faster because they they have those charges or they don't understand the consequences in the same manner as the next person just because of their sentence, and unfortunately, they're excluded. So we just need to um, educate about those kind of things to make that mm-hmm. change occur, and it, it's going to take a little time. Um, and a whole lot of education. So we're hoping when we go up on Monday that that's part of the conversation. We also will be supporting um, the Anti-Death Penalty Coalition to um, remember that all conversations about a death sentence, which both the death penalty and life without the possibility parole are both different types of death sentences, they're just one's a little bit slower than the other. And so we're we're gonna go support them on Wednesday as well as they do their lobby day and um their uh press conference so that we can be uniformed in all decisions about ending incarceration, not just finding a quick fix um to one sentence, but actually looking into what that sentence means and how we need to change it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. As well um, as we do have other bills on um, looking mm-hmm. at immigration and changing the prison to uh, ICE pipeline that is occurring, and so we're supporting as well on, on bills to, to change how somebody mm-hmm. is sent um, to a different form of incarceration. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, any... any um uh, like if a person is interested in volunteering, um, what? how do they, and they don't exactly know what they want to do, but they know they're interested, um, what would you suggest? And do they need to call you, uh, come to a meeting, or both of those things, or something coming up um, besides the the, um, the rally on Monday? Um, so definitely both if they like to come attend a meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But if they're, you know, unable but there's a lot of individuals that aren't and can dedicate a little bit of time maybe during the day where somebody else can only um, assist in the evening. Um, If they contact, as well as always remembering that um, the easiest and best way to engage with our inside community is um, contact, whether it's writing a letter or um, for some institutions they can pay so they have an email access uh, limited to that person who requests contact, but um, that support is really important, and so that's always a, a good step. 
for anyone trying to um, support incarcerated individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Coming back to your story, um, how does one, you know, sustain her humanity um, over a course of 23 years, um, you know, thinking about the worst days and the better days? Um, maybe you could, you know, tell us a little bit about your story. So for me, it was about how to educate and how to support someone in in that process of of time and and get, getting healing and growth. And so I would um, dedicate my time inside to um, facilitating um, groups. Cre- I created a domestic violence program that allowed us to get some healing not only for ourselves but also in the community as a whole and in in the community out here because family members would be able to engage um, whether it was written material that we provided or exercises that we did. And so um, those family members at visiting would actually do some of the things with their kids to educate them. A lot of stuff about teen violence that family members didn't know how to address or even how to deal with, that we created um, activities for people to do with their kids to, to teach them boundaries and, and, and things like that that were really helpful. Um, but I think the biggest part was just being willing to open up to my community, being honest and authentic about the fact that, yes, this sentence is horrible, but what are we going to do right now where we're at? to, you know, sustain ourselves, whether this is it or whether we have an opportunity for some change. And um, in doing that, I I never, I always said that I was going home, but I did not believe it. And so um, with that, you know, being ready at all times and knowing that I was doing all the right things um, that I could to educate myself and, and to better myself, when the opportunity did come, it I don't want to say it was easy, but um, my path was smoother than others who also have the same sentence but don't feel the hope and, and don't always strive that each day is about, you know, when I get out and what can I do with to better my, um, I, you know, I, as I struggled with, you know, the idea of, you know, losing basic dignity and and not being able to medically take care of myself in in the manner that I needed, Um, that became really difficult right before um, being released in between um, having, being commuted and, um, and going through that process, I realized just how unfairly the system was because when my sentence was life without the possibility of parole, um, they were forced to medically treat me when I um, had a, um, a medical procedure that went bad um, and they found out that I had just been commuted. They're like, well, you're too close to going home, so there's nothing that we can do at this time. And I realized just how um, devalued I was as a person just because of my sentence and just because of where I was at in that process, um, I couldn't get basic medical care. I had to wait to get out of the institution 
to find out that my um, artery had been punctured during my procedure, and that was why I was in such extreme pain. And so um, it, it, it was a very humbling experience to go through board um, barely able to walk. Um, and so I, I realized how important it is to continue to have that fight for the people inside. Not that I didn't see it every day, but it was such an extreme way to deal with the end of my time, um, just not knowing what was wrong, just knowing there was something wrong. And medically they kept saying, we just don't understand it. And I got out of the institution and got my medical records to a doctor, and they immediately, within minutes of reading my file, said, this is exactly what's wrong. Your artery needs to be closed. You need to have a, a procedure, you know, that kind of thing. And so we know inside that they have the same capability and capacity to do it, but the dignity just isn't there. Hmm. Wow, wow. Uh, and and you've since um, had that artery closed. Yes, 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 thank God. Um, and Good. I, you know, I will always have complications behind it, but immediately upon getting out, the initial um, tumors that need to be addressed were addressed, and and that's when they said like this was so obvious and and could have been preventable, and so that mm. that just showed me like how many people, just like me, are um, you know are affected on a daily basis, and we just mm-hmm. don't realize, you know that they need mm-hmm. the support. Um, we know that, that they need it. We just don't realize just how hard it is to get it. Right, right, yeah. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Okay. I wanted to ask you if you could uh, maybe um, want to call the names of some of the women who um, who you had to leave behind and uh, and maybe give us, you know, their... They're like, are they LWAP or do they have parole dates? And and then also call the names of women who who passed, who didn't, you know, um, weren't able to to leave. And and then lastly, I wanted you to talk about the census, uh, which is um, April first, which is the day of the next um, uh, CCWP meeting at the Freedom of Movement Center um, at six thirty. Um, but it's also an important day that everyone should get counted. And I know there's been some work and panels around, um, you know, counting everyone, you know, people that are incarcerated and people that are not incarcerated. So the importance of the census. But first, you know, call in the names. So um, it's a really hard one for me. I struggle greatly with um, the idea of all the, the individuals I have left behind. But I think the reason that it's such a struggle is because it's always about remembering I am no different than half of my population who works every single day for that freedom and deserves the freedom just as much as me in most situations. There's several who much more so. And so that makes it really difficult because I know that they're all striving for the same thing. And um, 
so some of those individuals as um, LWAPs that I have supported and um, I'm blessed to have that opportunity is Amber Bray and um, Arlene Dugmore and um, Carmel Murphy, Naomi Heater, Mimi Lee. Um, you know, as I look at some of these names, Ellen Richardson, and I, I, I think about all the work that they're doing to educate for domestic violence and um, others that are sitting in the law library supporting people when they can't get themselves out, but they're supporting others. Um, Jennifer Fletcher, who is, is working towards um, helping people in, you know, her job because she's blessed enough um, not to be kicked out of her job, even though she's an LWAP and was tried to be removed. They they uh, allowed her the opportunity until any circumstances happen, like she can't go out to medical or she'll lose her job, that kind of thing. And so you can't ask for basic care because you're afraid that you'll lose your position. Um, Karen Greenberger and Larissa Schuster, these are all individuals that are serving life without the possibility of parole and, and don't have an opportunity um, to even show that growth and change. They just hope and pray that the governor will, will take the opportunity to start the interview process again so that they might have an opportunity. And then I think of, of people who have went through the board process or are currently working towards um, what that looks like and um, struggling with just that inadequacy because they don't have representation. And I think of Maria Stepanoff and, and Kim Labor and um, Megan Hogue and, and these individuals have worked really hard to show their change and it, it's just, um, you know, a waiting pattern that everybody just hopes every day that they'll have an opportunity for tomorrow. Um, I think the hardest is as an individual who was part of the comfort care program, which is the end of life um, uh, support for individuals so that no one dies mm -hmm. alone. Um, I, I, I worked with comfort care my entire time at um, CCWS, and I had the ability to sit with patients as um, as they passed on, and um, that was probably the most difficult job, um, but it was a volunteer position that we felt great to have. And so as I think about Connie Hale and, and you know, the individuals um, like her who were just trying to get medical treatment and unfortunately um, they finally started taking care of them way too late. Um, Triana right now is, um, Turner is one of the individuals who lives in uh, our skilled nursing facility and even there having everyday contact with nurses, they missed, diagnosed her and she's now um, dealing with stage four breast cancer and that mm -hmm. never, ever should have happened. And so she's struggling, paralyzed individual in a nursing environment where they can't or chose not to make a proper diagnosis. Um, I think of our individuals who were so desperate and felt so hopeless that they um, took their own lives. And so 
Erica Rocha and Denise Gomez and and so many others that have, you know, just in a desperate state where they were unable to receive basic mental health care. Um, they, they became so desperate that they didn't have any other resources. And sadly, that is um, a story that is not told often enough, but at the same time should never, ever, ever happen. And so as I think about um, all of those individuals that we helped, um, Tim Russell and, and Mary and Simmons and, and Jessica Richards and all those people that we have supported, I know that each and every single one of them felt honored to have someone by their side in, in times of desperation and, and when they needed support. And some of them got they needed and others didn't. And truthfully, their family members struggle every day with losing their loved one in, a, in the incarcerated system and questioning, you know, what really happened and, and how much support did they receive and were they receiving the proper care that, that is mandated by the state at the very least. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing you asked about was the census and, and taking the opportunity to um, make sure that you're counted. And the truth is, um, inside, most people um, think of, of, of the idea of someone caring enough to, to keep track of who they are and, and you know, their basic rights and, and respect, they, you know, they don't see that. And so I wondered just, you know, as, as the census is about to take place, like what um, annoying processes they're going to go through um, instead of support and education. So a survey will probably go out to them, um, but they won't be told why, and they'll be locked down in order to fill it out. Um, in most institutions, you'll be locked down. And so if you had a planned phone call, the, the institution knows when this process is going to take. So they could inform the population, so from, from these times, don't sign up for laundry. You're going to be removed from your workplace and, and taken back to your housing unit. They can inform and educate so that everybody is aware of what they need to do. Um, they could you know, schedule mealtime around this. But instead, what they will do is they will um, call a, a, a recall, and it doesn't matter what you have happening, you're, you're forced to go back into your room. And if they knew what it meant, because most don't, they don't understand that this is to provide resources. They're not, they know that they're not going to feel the effect of whatever resources are provided. So um, I think for me, the first thing I thought of is, great, another day that they'll be locked down instead of, okay, this is a way that we are a part of the system that is for the better. And so I'm hoping that people choose to um, do things differently this time in the the system, staff-wise, and I'm hoping that they educate them instead of, 
um, punish them because it's annoying that they have to go through this process. And so mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it's a little bit different this time. But I have asked them to let me know what happens with them. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to um, hearing. I hope it does work better so we can actually have a more accurate count of, of everybody, you know, where, where our people are, you know, whether they're um, behind bars or under and unhoused, you know, where people are so that we can have a better sense of the magnitude of this problem because it is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, call a few names. Um, I wanted to call the name of uh, Patricia Wright. A lot of a lot of the women who were at Chowchilla um, are now at CIW in uh, Southern California. But Patricia Wright, um, who definitely needs to be released, who has been you know suffering from um, multiple illnesses for so long, and and Natalie Demola and Hakeem and um and Veronica Paz, um who all used to be, you know, here in Northern California that are now in Southern California. So I just wanted to um to mention their names and I wanted to pour a libation for Chopper, um, who is an ancestor now. Um but uh she like yourself, you know, when she was released, another prime example of metagnosis. Yeah. And and yes. treatment based on the misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then Family on a, a more... Family all too told story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then on a, um, a brighter note, because that's what, you know, Drop LWAP is all about, like yourself, you know, hey, you're with us, right? Um just wonder if you could maybe, you know, talk about, you know, give, address, um, give us some names of some other women that... Um, are also out because, you know, they were able to get uh, a parole hearing because the LWAP um, sentence was dropped. So we have right now, we have Dijanae, Laverne Dijanae. Um We have Tammy Garvin. We have um, Judith Barnett. We have Brandy Taliano. We have um, Christina Martinez. We have... Um, Cindy Purcell, we have Susan Bustamante, we have uh, Rita, Rita In, and those are just some of the females. We have more that are pending release as well, um, but those are just a few that I can think of just off the top of my head um, and how important those uh, individuals are um, not only to sustaining that hope inside that it's possible, but also that um, no matter where we're at, we're still supporting individuals inside as well. And so that means a lot to to the people inside that we're reaching back in and, and showing that support. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. Well, give the information about Monday one more time just in case people sort of got lost in in the story and didn't jot it down. <laughs> sure, no problem. So I hope everyone um, has an opportunity, always remembering that even if you're unable to go to the Capitol on any rally day, well, you can always present it in your county about 
LWAP and what they believe it to be and um, ask, ask them to do some research and understand the process of life without possibility for all. Um, but what we will be doing is working with legislators in the Capitol after our rally, um, supporting family members and giving those voices to the family members so that they can understand just how important their role is um, for that incarcerated person and um, and kind of giving an opportunity to um, to stand up and say that, you know, we understand that incarceration is not going to be acceptable for anyone at any time, and we need to, to end the, this mass incarcerated state. The entire state is... Um, is being destroyed by loved ones being removed instead of looking at the behavior of that loved one and helping change and grow and um, and make better you know options instead now they're just being thrown away in the prison system. We have 19 year olds doing 99 to life when they were sitting in a classroom during their crime. Um, you know, there's something wrong about that. You know, when you are saying that you are unredeemable and you should never um, have an opportunity to show that you can do better and be better. Mm-hmm. This world is about change and growth. It's going to happen. Some things, whether we like it them like them or not, and, and the truth is an incarcerated person is working on self every single day in so many ways that us in this busy community sometimes don't even take the time or the opportunity to say please and thank you or, you know, excuse me or hold the door. That doesn't happen inside. They, you know, treat each other um, in a different manner that, that shows that there's better um, individuals and just need an opportunity to prove that to the world. hmm Right, right, yeah. Is there um, anything on the CCWP uh, Women Prisoners website that um, someone that's interested in the, um, you know, drop LWAP, you know, sort of like some language if they want to go talk to their legislators? Is legislators, um, is there something that they could find? Yeah, they, or, or do they? Um, hmm? Well, one of the things is. Um, directly actually to the governor that helps educate. Mm-hmm. So there's a fact sheet about um, LWAPs oh, okay. that would help them um, have the conversation. But also mm-hmm. um, there's a letter to the governor asking him to commute um, all um, individuals. We make sure to support both men and women, even though, well, trans, um, non-binary, any individual incarcerated serving life without the possibility of parole, we want to, to make sure that their voices are uplifted to the governor and that he ends this horrible sentence. And so um, you can always sign the petition that goes directly to him saying end mm-hmm. this sentence. Right. Yeah, I found that. It's under the menu. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to link to that um, here by your name so people can find it easily. Um, the letter to the governor and drop LWAP resources and LWAP information. Yeah, yeah, this is really good. Okay, super, super. Well, thank you so much um, for this wonderful, com- enlightening conversation, uh, Kelly. And I'm not going to be able to make it on Monday because I have a, I teach a class at that time. 
but um but I'll I'll be with you in spirit and I will look at these resources and and see about setting up an appointment with my uh, local representatives and see where they stand on this issue. I, I think they both awesome. I think they um I know Skinner and um and Bonta I think they're already, you know, doing the right thing, but just in case. <laughs> Good. Good. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's about holding them accountable. They work for us. And the, the truth right. is, most of us don't even realize that. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's about, you know, you know, making them think. You know, right. even if they don't make change, if they're thinking, it, it is one more step towards the future that we need. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you have a good rest of the day and uh, look forward to hearing about, you know, how the um, the rally goes and, you know, having you on, um, you know, again to update us on important issues that um, CCC, CCWP, California Coalition for Women Prisoners, is uh, involved in. And, uh, and uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. You take good I care. I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Peace Have a wonderful day. You too. So we are going to conclude with... Um, a rebroadcast of an interview with Skylar uh, Cooper, the One Man Show, um, which is at theater. Actually, One Man Show, which is at Theater First. It closes this weekend, um, tomorrow. Um, there is uh, 2 p.m. of the play that's in concert with One Man Show, and then um, uh, Skylar's. Um, oh, I think it's a whole. Is it the weekend? It might. I think it might be on Sunday as well. Um, but it's uh, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I need to go to the website and look. Um, but I'm thinking it's tomorrow. Yet yeah, it is. It's tomorrow. Tomorrow it ends. Tomorrow at eight o'clock. So um, so here is the interview, which is really really good, and um, and and uh, Skylar talks about about the show. I mean about the play, and um, yeah, and about um, sort of his life. And and how how this this work came to to be uh, came to fruition, and um, gosh, there's so much happening uh, in the Bay Area. So what I suggest is that you go look at wandaspicks.com for all the details, and um, yeah, because um, I don't want us to run out of time, um, and um, and you could just go do that, and, and you can just like see what's happening because uh, there is a lot going on. Alrighty, thanks so much for listening to another edition of Wanda's Picks. Peace and blessings, everybody. I've been walking with my face turned to the sun. Weight on my shoulders, a bullet in my Oh, I got eyes in the back of my head Just in case I had to run I do what I can when I can while I can for my people While the clouds roll back and the stars fill the
salvation And I'll fight with the strength that I got until I So beautiful. Stand up. Uh, Cynthia Irvo? Irvio? Irv. Gosh, I'm I'm killing her name. I need to. Sorry. (laughs) I need to practice this one. Yeah, sorry about that. But um, she portrayed Harriet in the film by the same title, and it was so wonderful. I'm so excited. We are joined by. Hello, this is Skyler. Yes. Hi, Skyler. How are you? Hi, Hi Wanda. How are you? Oh, it's been a minute since we've had an opportunity to have a conversation. And wow, what better opportunity <laughs> than to talk to you about a one-man show, The Play, that's opening <laughs> yeah. in repertory uh, next week, February 15th. And it's going to be, I think you get like... Um, Almost like a month, you know, um, and you're you're in repertory with um, another another actor, and uh, it's a part of the theater. First, history keeps me awake. Queer voices in, in repertory, um, the 15th through the 7th, and uh, wow, yeah. So, <laughs> tell us about um, a one man show. Um, I mean, I could read the blurb, but hey, you're live. <laughs> oh, well, thank and, you, thank you. And so I'm gonna let you tell us about about your work. But I was just thinking, you know, um, sort of the the last song that I played. You know, I come to prepare a place, right? Um, and we're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, Harriet, that the song from the film. And when, <laughs> oh, uh, wow. you know, when that song comes, I was like, oh my god. And I just think about, you know, this work. Um, it's it's yeah. preparing a place, right? You know, for yeah. for other other you know um, trans people to be able to like step Correct. in because because you told that story right, and that and the so way that correct. you tell stories, you are just like oh my god. I mean, you know, you have a fan base, right? Uh, do I? Oh, that's 
so great. Uh, yes, I, you yes. know, I do I'm know. I, I guess I do know. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you, Wanda. Well, thank you for this introduction. It's I'm really, really humbled and and really open. You know, like so wide open right now. Um, you know, just this is my. I'm a. I'm a very, and I guess this is me. I'm a very open book, and um, yeah. you know, when I started this one man show, the the idea came last year when John Tracy we talked about it, and then from that, um, I said, well, you know, I I have some projects, and um, see how the summer goes because I was cast to play Othello as the first trans man uh, to play Othello on a professional stage. And so I was just like, okay, I really want to find the way I can bring this 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 journey of my my trans um, identity as an artist, and how I could bring it into the one man show. But I realized as I was as I started writing that a good bulk of my my story was lived as a black female. You know, it was my journey, and so often you hear that like with. Uh, with trans people, it's it is a journey. Um, it's um, I met a, a famous actor. His name is Oba Babatunde, and he said something that I thought was so profound. Um, he said, "We're we're not hatched; we're born." You know, and and I so believe that. Like, you don't come in this world and like this is who you are. You know, to who you are, and that's a one man show. A one man show is a very uh, honest and vulnerable look at how I came to existence. And I think it, with anybody I've met that have gone through <laughs> fire, you know, they, and they're still standing, it, they become stronger. Um, but they only can be stronger if they can be vulnerable. If they can look back and go, yeah, I went through all of that but I went through that to be who I am now. You know, I'm not just this one thing or, you know, it's like, uh, it is like we're creation. We're a creation and I am absolutely a work in progress. So even as I wrote the one man show, I'm just like, you know, I talked to John Tracy. I know I don't want it to end with, okay. And then that's it book. And you know, I'm done. And it's not that because I don't see life like that. You know, it should feel ongoing, and I want people to be happy about the journey they on they are on. Whether it's uh, challenging right now, but the longer you go, it will change. You know, there's this, like there's no one um, experience in life that that just stays the same. It, it just we just cannot grow that way. And so I think that's the one man show. It just really shows that journey of ups and downs and how I came to be today. And, and I'm just really proud to be able to, to work with Theater First, John Tracy, Dominique Lozano, um, Lisa Evans. Just, this collaboration is just, I'm so blessed to have them. Uh, when you see it, you see that, it just, it's just not one person. You know, it's just, it, in this sense, in the creative process, it is a teamwork. You know, so I think One Man Show is a funny title because, you know, we all come into life and in some ways we are a one-man show, you know, but when you're actually putting it on the scene, it's, it's a multiple people show, you know, and so, mm-hmm. so it, it, it's so, I'm so excited. I'm really, really excited about this journey.
think I started out by saying that when I started this, I was really open. So I had, when I came out of Othello, I had um, lost my dog, my, my companion, uh, Frida Rome. She was a basset hound, and, and I didn't expect it. And it happened as I was starting to write. And I was really, really challenged by that. And I just thought, you know, I don't know if I can, can do this. You know, but I thought, a friend of mine said to me, will you be a year, uh, a year from now, will you be where you want to be if you pulled out from everything and just grieved, <laughs> right? And I said, wow, no, I won't, you know? And so I utilized that experience, that feeling, that openness, and I'm so grateful that I did because, because I gave myself compassion. I was able to tell those stories that I was ashamed of at one point. I was like, oh, you know, oh, no, I can do this, you know? So it's just... um. It's, it's really a gift. It's a blessing to be able to tell it and to tell it in the Bay Area, uh, which is such a supportive uh, community here. And it's important to tell it now um, in, this, mm-hmm. in this time we're in in this country. Um, it's, it's a scary time. But I think with the work I'm doing, it just magnifies the importance of it. You know, because mm-hmm. it's, uh, I, yeah, yeah, I think it was um, someone, oh, I think it was Viola Davis had made this analogy of um, to have a seat at the table, basically, mm-hmm. in order to affect change. And so, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm doing with this show. I, I'm staying at the table. And, um, and I think that the best way to give, an alternative to the stories that we're hearing right now that seem negative and seem hopeless, the alternative to that is to put forth stories that are positive and uplifting. That, that just is, you know, it just, that's the way you do it. And so you, you have other stories. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. So that's a, a one man show. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ron Dellums also talked about, you know, make sure we have a seat at that table because, you know, that's it's our house. <laughs> Langston Hughes mm-hmm. talks about it too in a lot of his poetry, um, you know, that when he talks about, you know, America, you know, that it's our America, not their America. Um, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about how we have that, you know, that binary uh, chicken or egg, right? And it's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It, we are more mm-hmm. than that. And, and I know when people, I've had people talk to me about, you know, the, the, what the story is about, like being born a, a Baptist minister's daughter who doesn't believe in God. And like, right there, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, how does that, you know, go? And is this going to be a show about, you know, um, you know, some people might think, oh, this is a show about, oh, you're not about Christianity or a, a gig against Christianity. And it is absolutely not. Um, it is, in fact... I think is a homage more to spirituality um, Mm -hmm. and the importance of it. And I think that's another element that is in this country that, you know, if you don't have one faith, then therefore you're not welcome to the table. And that's just not true. Um, I think that what I've learned in my journey is in many ways, like we have help for different modalities of, of, of keeping our health the way we want to to be fit, you know? So, like, for instance, 
for your body, you might want yoga or you might want CrossFit, right? But it's all for the gain of to have fitness. Uh, for your mind, some people like to read. Some people might do other things to give themselves mental health. But for some reason, with, when we get to the, the spirit, there's no um, understanding about we have a choice in how to be spiritually healthy. And that's what I had to learn in, in this uh in the story is that it's about choosing your spiritual health because I think at the end of the day, that's really what we want. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a show that, that shows that alternative, that there's no black and white. Um, it, there's more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wouldn't it be easier if there was, it was just like, you know, those polarities, right? It's like, okay, you stand mm-hmm. over here or you stand over there. It's like, oh, no, it's not that easy. Gosh, I can't even see over there really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I can't see over there until I see where I am, right? Like, okay, this stuff here needs to become more clear before I can see over mm-hmm. there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Ah, wow. So, gosh, um, Baptist minister's daughter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Afraid to tell her parents she liked girls. Right. Didn't believe right. in God. Hmm. Yeah. I definitely <laughs> wish to become a, really... a man. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's conflict in the first sentence, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's like, oh, and then being black in America, you know, you, you, that oh. comes into play. And, and, and right. it's just... And that just goes without saying. I don't. I don't know that I, I. I would. I even put that in there. But I think it goes without saying. I would think that people can go. Oh, okay. So you're, you're you were a Baptist minister's daughter, who didn't believe in God, liked girls, and didn't identify with the gender you assigned, and you're black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay. Right. You know. So it's like wow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Thank you much. And um, so I think that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not been a boring life. <laughs> I can tell mm-hmm. you that. And I'm grateful for that. I think that when I look back, and, I, and the, the, just the amazing and diverse group of friends that I've come in contact with uh, who have challenges as well, like just life feels that out for us. and uh, And I feel that it really is, it starts with your core, your spirit, that, that, that inner voice and how it sees your, you know, your world. And I think that based on that, it will tell you how challenging your life will be, but I, I truly believe that we come into existence with a knowing, like we have an inner voice of who we are, and it's just about being brave enough to give yourself that, to become who you want to be, you know, and rather than what others want you to be. And so that's a, that's a definite um, theme in this show that I would hope comes mm. across to the audience. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you, are you portraying um, these various characters? Um, and I, I know that, <laughs> The work is in development, you know, as of, like, last night, you got a new draft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just cut, because the show is, it's like, it's so much story, you know, and I didn't, it, the other thing is I didn't think it was going to be this memoir. 
but it turned into like a, a live memoir, and I'm certainly going to hold on to it. It's actually like an outline for, for the memoir book okay. I will eventually write uh, because there's mm. so much more story that I cannot pack into an hour. And I, and I, I was telling my partner, you know, because I was talking about the, some of the stories I'm sharing, and I, I can see how vulnerable they are, and I, I, would, I would hope that even when people see that, they still wouldn't know. <laughs> there's just, you know, there's so much more, you know, that goes on. But I think that uh, the the memoir that it's it's become has been it's been um, oh my gosh, what is I'm totally lost my train of thought. It's been really eye opening for me, uh, mm-hmm. and how I think when I think about the, you know, coming into the world as this Baptist minister's daughter and wanting to be a boy. And now that I am a trans man, identify as a trans man. I, I, uh, I think that what I've told is a story of, of my, uh, my, my challenges. And I'm telling them to these, these, these people, these communities that I've existed in, like I existed as a, I still exist as a black person, but I existed as mm-hmm. a black woman who is gay, and now I'm a black trans man, and it's, uh, I think it speaks to those marginalized groups uh, who don't often see their stories told. This, this, this script is a work in progress because there's just so much to go and, and put into a one-man show that, I've, that is my life. Um, so right now, I think if anything, we have so much story. We're trying to, okay, well, what's really important? What's being said twice? You know, that sort of thing. But, but in terms of the, the actual storyline, it's there, and it's, it's solid, and I love that. Um, it's just that I can't put it all in, you know, and, again, I, I'm sure people will say, wow, this is a lot. You've been through that? And they still mm. wouldn't know the whole story. You know, there's so much more. But yeah, yeah. I'm 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 really excited, and I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset if somebody wanted to take the show again and take it somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. I think it'll still continue to grow. It has that life in it. Uh, the characters that are showing up um, have that uh, that ability to keep doing things through me, <laughs> you know, like last night. Oh, it was last night. It was the night before that. We were in rehearsal, and one of my characters, she was just sassy. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, and that's, that's in rehearsal. And so, as you know, like shows, as you go through them, they tend to grow, and they, you know, and that's because over time the characters start, they hear the words, and they, they, they know, they're like they want to express themselves differently. Looking forward to that. Just the fact what they're doing through me in the rehearsal process is exciting. So I'm really looking forward to my characters growing in me and, and, and through me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, a work in yeah. progress throughout closing. <laughs> you mm-hmm. might see something different from night one to the closing oh. night. But isn't it That's always good. like that? You know? Yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. think it's, yeah, not in terms of story, but, you know, just in, in terms of, of – of character and, and how right. they express themselves, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, 
you know, initially there might be a little little stage, you know, fright or whatever, quivers, and then and then also the audience has a lot to do with, you know, sort of because theater is interactive. You know, the energy from the oh, audience yeah. um, definitely affects um, the performance, you know, and that's what's really great about theater. You know, it's live. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I don't know this new location, but the um, the Waterfront Playhouse and Conservatory at 2024th Street in Berkeley, is it is it um, similar in in uh, uh, style to the um, um, the Live Oak Park Theater, or is it is it what what does it look like in there? Is it bigger? Is it small? Like is it oh, intimate? Oh, it's a very intimate venue. Yeah, it's a very intimate mm-hmm. venue, 50 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. it, it feels like the audience feet? is on stage 50. Yep. Oh, so people might want to get their nice. tickets. You know, yeah, so it will, totally. It's that kind of venue that can easily sell. I like my my. I I live four and a half hours away, and my oh, my. Um, you do. I rent. Yeah, yeah. I live in Sequoia National Forest. It's it's very. You do. You live in a forest. <laughs> yeah. I, Lucky you. I live. Yeah, I live. Well, my well, I, my house is on the river. I, I rent a house on the river, but it's just so expensive to live in the Bay Area. But you live I, on I a river I, in a forest? Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it this wow. way. The, the Sequoia National Forest is my mm-hmm. backyard. Like, I can see it when I step out of my house. Um, so I live in a, a town, a, 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 foot, a town in the foothills um, mm-hmm. called Springville. And it's um, about three miles before you pass a, you know, welcome to Sequoia National Forest. So Mm-hmm. It's nice because within less than 30 minutes, mm-hmm. I can be in the snow um, or I can be where it's warm. It, it's great. I, I love it. Um, but I, I moved there to to write, um, to write my feature film, which I just finished and start, Congratulations. start working on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I start working on next week. <laughs> so I'll start putting on my filmmaker hat as mm-hmm. the show opens. Um, it's now, I think it's now time to... Uh, to transition again, and I don't know yet whether I'll stay in California or I'll move um, away, but for now, I'm here, and I'm definitely here through the year. But yeah, my home is there, and my landlord, uh, she texted me and said she's coming the opening night. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, oh, I'm, I'm so nice. Yeah, she's out in four and a half hours. So, so yeah, I mean, she's seen, she's seen some of my shows, so I'm really excited that she's, she's going to come see this. Um, mm mm-hmm. A lot of people have been so supportive, and you included, and I really appreciate you, and I appreciate your listeners. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I guess I'm not so much of a social media person. I should be. I'm terrible at marketing. and <laughs> terrible about uh, telling people what I'm doing, but I always find that people find out, and that means they're, they're watching, and I just, I can't tell you how uplifting it is, you know, um, and I'm feeling a little emotional. That's interesting. <laughs> I just really appreciate the love and support that I've mm. got. It is those voices, even the exchange we're having now, that will visit me in those moments where I might be alone and might doubt myself and say, can I do this? And then I might hear your voice, or I might hear someone else's voice who's been supportive and and it keeps me going. It keeps me going, and and I'm grateful for that. And I and I have a good life because of that. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you. Yeah, 
You're welcome. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate, you know, these stories. And I was just thinking, you know, um, about, you know, Sequoia National Forest, you know, in as a part of your backdrop of Spring <laughs> Springville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 and and I was thinking about um, uh, Colonel um, or Captain Charles Young, who was a um, Buffalo soldier, who is now going to be um, uh, given the honor of title of Brigadier General because he he really wanted to to get that next level of um, of um, of uh, service, but the war ended. But he is responsible. His he and his men are responsible for uh, paving the road there um, that is still being used at Sequoia National Forest. They named the highway after him. Um, oh wow! I think it was yeah yeah this wow. Veterans Day passed. Um, there's a tree with his name on it because um, what mm-hmm. happened was you know they have the Office of Interior and and now there's a whole you know unit that has the National Park Services. But back then. Um, the soldiers, you know, during the summer would take care of the parks, and and the Buffalo Soldiers. He was like one of the, he was the first African American um, um, superintendent um, of the parks, mm. and 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 so um, yeah, um, uh, Brigadier General, he's going to be honored, named that next week. Like when you're when you're doing um, <laughs> a one man show. They're going to be honoring him in Kentucky <laughs> with this new wow. <laughs> new rank. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love it. And I love it, it. Isn't it great? Like you know, so think about about this whole thing around place, right? And right. And and I was just thinking, where where are you? Were you born here? Well, like this Baptist church? Was it in California? Was it in the South? Where where oh, was this Brooklyn, Baptist New York. church that you grew up Brooklyn, in? Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Brooklyn, New oh, York. My dad was from yeah. the South. Yeah. My, yeah, my oh, father was from the mm-hmm. South. He was an Alabama boy, and, you know, he came oh, from wow. a family of ministers. All mm-hmm. six of his brothers, I think five of them were also ministers. <laughs> I wow. come from a very, very Christian family, and I adore my family. They're just, mm-hmm. they're the best. I could not have been more blessed to have these types of Christians <laughs> in my life because they're so mm-hmm. loving and accepting, you know, of, of everyone. And they are accepting of me and love me and support me and respect uh, that I have a different spiritual practice and they still respect me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, I think that that is the, that is the way you, you get people to, to have dialogue and you get people to listen. You know, if I had a show that just attacked, you know, uh, people who share different views from me, then the people who need to hear it won't come, you know? So, mm-hmm. so my hope is that I tell the story uh, as vulnerable as it is, but I'm also um, expressing my strength through it as well, you know? Like I, mm-hmm. I show how to overcome that. And, uh, and I just think that when we see other people's challenges, that we might find that we're not so different because we might want to think we really are all human. Um, and like, I think even now, like, as I, as I think about projects I do, you know, as a friend of mine said, you know, I, I feel in this time right now as an artist, I feel like I can't afford to do like Neil Simon plays, you know, like the, the stories I do need to have 
uh, importance and substance and social, social value uh, as an artist. Because I think artists, educators, uh, scientists, doctors, those are the people who move society forward. And when we start getting into politicians and corporate, that's all about money. And that's just, that's an illusion, you know, that is, doesn't even speak to humanity whatsoever. <laughs> like, so our humanity is tied to learning. It's tied to our health. It's tied to our spirituality. It's tied to our cultural expression for humanity. That's our growth. And, and those are the stories I'm committing my life to telling. Uh, mm-hmm. And I am very, very excited about doing that. So, and in fact, mm-hmm. I don't want to forget to, to share with your, your listeners that, you know, as I move into this next project, you know, the, the best way to find out what I'm doing and support um, would be through my website. Um, certainly mm-hmm. people can find me on my Facebook, Skylar Cooper. It's me holding Frida, <laughs> my, my basset hound. Um, but they can also find me on www.skylarcooper.net, not .com. Um, and there we, we will be posting lots of information starting, I think we start pre-production in March. So people can mm-hmm. reach out, send me messages. They can find out about the one-man show uh, through my social media. Um, and I just really would appreciate it. And it's funny because you mentioned Harriet. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. about my, my, my speech. I don't think we talked about it. I felt like we did maybe a while ago. Um, but it's about this um, a young black veteran who suffers a workplace meltdown, confined to a psych ward, and learns a story that restores her sense of self. Uh, and it's, it's really powerful, um, this story, because, you know, I believe stories inspire love and hate. I believe stories, you know, they can lift us up, they can hold us down, they can make us believe, they can make us doubt, but it's, it's, it's either the story you tell yourself or the story you hear that is affecting who you are. So I really wanted to show this power of storytelling by putting this young black combat veteran, this female combat veteran, because I don't know how many stories of PTSD you've seen with female veterans. I don't know how many you've seen with black female veterans, right? I have not seen zero. Mm -hmm. So as as a black transgender veteran, I wanted to tell a story. You're a veteran? Of the American. I am. I wanted to tell a story of the American experience of survival through this point mm. of view. And so, yeah, so, so, so Jordan Dunlap, my, my veteran, mm-hmm. gets confined to a psych ward with other veterans across, uh, of wars across the generations. And, uh, mm. and then she meets this, this, this combat veteran, this Vietnam veteran, who tells her the story of Muley a formidable, colossal runaway slave woman who survives by taking the identity of a man. Mm-hmm. And as we watch Muley overcome tremendous obstacles of race and gender in the past, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. the present day we see Jordan uh, making incremental shifts like in her behavior, lifting her up as she keeps hearing the story. And so, you know, I, I, I really loved telling this dual story because I just felt like we don't see black people learning about black other black people and being mm-hmm. inspired by their stories. And our black American history unfortunately comes from slavery. However, not slave was a victim. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, 
Frederick Douglass. These are people who lived through difficult times in this country, and they survived and they made a difference. Well, Jordan Dunlap is going to hear about a black woman who, 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 who survived by taking the identity of a man, and this is based on a true person. She's like mm-hmm. an anti-hero. She's the opposite of Harriet Tubman, <laughs> but she mm-hmm. is awesome. And I'm excited about playing her. I'm excited about shooting this short this summer, and we're going to make mm-hmm. this feature next. But mm-hmm. all of this is, is about the work that I want to do. I want to tell these black American stories um, from these groups of people that we don't normally see, and they will be powerful, and they will be universal. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah. Wow. So so this is what your your film is about? This is the what you're working on right now, the Jordan Dunlap story? Yes, or yes it's called just, Worthy of Survival. Oh, it's called Worthy of Worthy. Survival. And oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it's a part of, um, yeah, where you there's a link to, um, yeah, and it's a real short bio. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, what's Worthy of Survival? And this is Worthy of yeah. Survival. Oh, worthy of Survival. Nice. Yeah, Worthy of Survival. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like... Um, it's a cross between fried green tomatoes meet Goodwill <laughs> hunting on a set of uh-huh. one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like that's my wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I sent a draft to Lena Waite. I'm hoping I sent her a, a pitch deck. I'm waiting oh. uh, to hear back. And if I, I don't know, nice. you know who Lena Waite is. She, I um, know that name. Yeah, she produced the shy. Uh, um, and she did Master of None. She did. She got a, a an Emmy for one of the episodes she wrote in Master of None. She's just a, a, an amazing sister doing amazing things. She's a queer woman, mm-hmm. and you know yeah. I just think someone like her would be interested. We are in the same circles, but she's just harder mm-hmm. to reach because you know she doesn't know me. But you know the oh. thing is, is that you have to knock, you have to knock on the door. If you don't knock on the door, how do you know whether it will open? So what I do right. is I knock. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily know whether the door is going to open, but it's not going to stop me from knocking. But I will mm-hmm. continue to go forward, and I will make this <laughs> film, and I will say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I knocked on your door, <laughs> but you didn't open it. <laughs> so I just kept going. <laughs> and that's how Hero Mars came to pass, this multi-award winning film. You know, is oh. I knocked on lots of doors, and I just finally said, okay, let's do this. And, and mm-hmm. that's just how it goes. And it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah. nice, nice. And are your films going to be available, like, for instance, Hero Mars and You've Got the Gray Area? Um, are they available? Yeah. Um, the ones that are? Well, I oh, know, cool. I'm, I know Gray Area. I'm not sure what their distribution is right now um, with mm-hmm. that, but I know with Hero Mars I have I have that. I've not put it on Vimeo, but I, I, I might do that uh, very soon. Uh, it's still, you know, gets asked to film festivals, but, but I, I, I can say that if anybody wants to watch it, you know, they can just contact mm-hmm. me. But I, I haven't. I used to have it on my website. I, do. I don't. You just, you haven't seen Hero Mars? Uh uh-uh. uh Oh my gosh! I will send that to you. Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You might see a little bit of it in the one man show. It's possible. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I think that. What I I want to talk to my team because we will be marketing mm-hmm. for the next film and they might want to say yeah let's go ahead and release this for people to see what your team mm-hmm. can do and mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. so again going to my website uh, following me on 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 Instagram on on Facebook uh, that's the best way for people to to find out what I'm doing next so, mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah yeah and 
was wondering um, if you have a few more minutes, um, if if you know we could talk about um, for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know when we talk about you know so the, the different iterations of of this working process process we call our our lives right and ourselves. Mm. Um, you know we we have like we have a d- destination we think we know where we're going and then things come in and. And, and and we sort of let ourselves be guided in other directions and we find out, you know, not quite knowing where we're going, but like, oh yeah, this was this was good. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I'm glad I I'm glad I surrendered to this. Um, even though I didn't know where this yield was gonna take me. Um so if you could talk a little bit about that, um in in you know, in in so far as the story that you're telling, you know, presently a one-man yeah, sure. show, um, mm-hmm. and then yeah. worthy of survival, you know, sort of also happening at the same time, and oh, and then the second, yeah. yeah, and then the last thing I wanted you to talk about, because I think it's something that we always need to sort of keep, um, you know, in the forefront of our minds, you know, is the violence, you know, violence um, against, you know, the trans community, particularly the African uh, American mm-hmm. trans community. Um, and yeah. you know, because you know, everyone should be safe, and and everyone is not safe, and black people are not safe. Mm-hmm. But then there are certain mm-hmm. black people that are really not safe, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, well, I'd love to speak to all of those. Um, okay. The first is the work in progress, right? What mm-hmm. that's yeah. been like, and this, just for clarity, you mean for me as an individual, or the work in progress yeah. of the one man show? In work in progress as as people as we are because remember how as you talked people, yeah. at the beginning about how um, you know we're we're not hatched we're born you know we, we come into who we are because you know we come into who we are through community right through reflection For, you know we yeah. we don't know who we are until somebody reflects back to us that they see us <laughs> and yeah. then it's like oh you know what, okay <laughs> you know what's evidence of that there's this evidence of that is that even in a one-man show, when I write it, and I talked about earlier, like, how the characters change, they say the same thing. They don't not say the same thing, but they change and they evolve. And, and so even in this fixed environment that you can create in the story world, the characters want to, like, through you as the actor, they want to express themselves differently because that's natural. It is natural to want to change and to transform and to, to transition I I don't think anything in this world that we're all living in stays the same. <laughs> Nothing. It all changes. It transforms. And you know, there's this um, there's this uh, Buddhist uh, theory, like how you know we go through spring, summer, winter, fall. You know, we transition uh, from the moment that we are. Uh, born like the, the the wildlife like I'm I'm standing here outside I'm looking at the ocean I'm at the uh, VA actually and they have an amazing like million dollar view and I'm just looking around looking at all this nature and how even the, it changes you know but then I'll see among like maybe like all of the same plants I'll see that one plant that's different right if you ever go and you ever hike and you see like a meadow. And you see all the same, and you'll always find that one flower that's different. And you're like, how the heck did that get there, right? And so I, that's mm-hmm. how I feel, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it doesn't belong. It's part of the world, you know. And sometimes you might spring up in an area where you're the only one, and so you have to figure out how to continue 
to thrive. And that's what they do. They, and they still go through the seasons of spring, summer, winter, fall, like the other things around them, and they come right back, you know. And so, <clears throat> pardon me, I think, that, I think that that is indicative of life. And we are, as people, are not different from that. And finding, find, realizing that, for me, um, allowed me to really enjoy the journey that I'm on. As difficult as it might be at times, I have to trust that that is not all it's going to be. Um, and honoring my life and the things that I want to do and, and, and um, become is only going to uh, improve challenging the things that are in the way of that, you know, and, and that's the, that's the growth. That's the, the joy. That is life. We all go through that. If we mm-hmm. want to grow, and, you know, and then I, I walk around, uh, I've walked around downtown recently and I just saw, you know, I, I can't not see people suffering. Like I notice people can just walk by somebody who's on the ground and they're covered in, you know, dirt and filth. And I just keep walking past them, and I just go, wow, this was a human being that was, had, was loved and had, you know, this was a child once. And I go, how, how, do, we get, how do you get there? You know, and I think that it's, um, it definitely comes from a, 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 a either staying fixed and not unwilling to go, oh, there's more than just this, you know, and, and being willing to look, allowing yourself to grow uh, is, is really important. And so I, I found that for me it was honoring the ability to uh, to challenge my environment. You know, I had to I had to challenge my environment because I could end up easily like these people, you know, if I go, Okay, I got I have to become this, I have to become something else that I don't want to become. Um, so yeah, I, I think that a work in progress is the way we continue. You know, mm-hmm. if, we, if we think we've arrived, then there's no growth, you know? And there's so much illusion right now. There's so much illusion. And it just keeps coming, you know, distractions. And, like, people are becoming less and less connected with themselves. And part of, part of that is because we're just overstimulated. We're not able to tap into our true selves. We can't hear our voices anymore um, because we're constantly, I got to do this, got to catch up to that, I got to email this person, got to, you know, post here. And it's like, how can you, like, you know, and I just thought, I was telling my girlfriend today, I said, you know, I want to watch, I wanted to watch this movie, this old movie. That's not that freaking old, but now it's an old movie because <laughs> we see what's out there now. And, um, and I don't know, I just wanted to watch something that reminded me of a simpler time. But and then I said to my girlfriend, I said, you know what? But even now, with all of the video and the, the phones, the, the smartphones, even now, like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, this is going to be a simpler time. <laughs> so can you imagine what that right. would be like? You know? Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, we are, we are constantly evolving. We're constantly a work in progress. And I just say enjoy the journey enjoy it the ups and downs and remember like 
those ups and downs should it's important also not to tie yourself to those ups and downs. So I try not to tie myself, for instance. I try not to tie myself to the highest highs. Like getting to, like it's great when they happen, but I try not to go, okay, now I'm happy and then oh, things are shitty. Okay, now I feel shitty. It's just it's a hard existence to have, you know. And it's it, this is the challenge is to stay unaffected by the highs and lows. Appreciate them for what they are and then keep going. And you can enjoy the highs, you know, you absolutely can. Um, but it's just it's hard to to stay settled in it because I think that for me, I found that I create when I keep going. If I, you know, I have a success, I'm like, oh, that was great, you know, and something happens that's not so great. Okay, that's not so awesome. I keep going. And that's where I, I, I find the, it's the stuff that's in between. That's where the, the gold is. It's the in between the highs and the lows. That's where you want to stay. Um, so, yeah, so that's the work in progress theory I have about, <laughs> about life. Um, um, uh-huh. um, the One Man Show uh, I definitely think that that was evidence of of that because I was challenged by the one man show. The stories that that came out of me that I didn't have this understanding at that time, you know. And I think that's what I I had to allow myself to uh, to be able to write is that okay, you know, this is kind of embarrassing, <laughs> but but I'm like, but I didn't know what I knew then, right? And I would I would think that. If somebody says, "Oh wow, you did that," or "You were like that," and and thinking like, "Oh, but you're you're but you're so much more together right now," I'm like, "Yeah," and 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 I am, and I would hope that people don't think that. Oh, because I've done certain things in my life that I can't be genuine in who I am today. Does that make sense? What I'm saying. Right. So yeah, definitely. So yeah, so so a one man show, uh, definitely. Um, has that display of, you know, work in progress. That's really the character, a work in progress. And oh, the, the violence in the trans community. I, I have a hard time with that I, I've, I, because I feel somewhat trans privileged. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, most of my life, I have been seen as a male. Um, and so even when I was walking around with my girlfriends, I didn't have the, the toxic male energy that would get thrown at butch femme couples or lesbian couples that I oftentimes hear happens with them. Um, guys would think, oh, it's a guy and a girl. And so when I – and my trans identity – I've, it's, it almost feels like the only thing that's changed is pronouns. The people in my inner circle now call me sir, or I mean sir, but yeah, they call me sir, or they call me he, pronouns. But, mm-hmm. but my outer circle, the bigger world, has always seen me as he. I've rarely gotten she in my entire life. Like even as a little girl, I was considered, a little, the people would think I was a little boy. Um, so, but because of that privilege, I've not been exposed to it, so it's maddening to see it happen to my trans sisters. Um, I don't think that my trans brothers get it as much, um, 
but I, I, re- I relate to my trans sisters because when I was a, a butch woman masculine, I faced the same kind of hostility. Oh, you're not, you're not, you're not a woman because you're not feminine, you know? And that just, and to my show, you know, like, so I speak to these groups because I feel like I've, I've lived through them. Like I get it and I understand it. Um, as an artist, I want to continue to be able to tell those stories. Um, I don't think that I have to be a, 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 a butch woman identified to tell a butch woman's story. In the same way that when I was a, a masculine female or a butch woman, um, I played male and female roles as an actor. You know, so as a trans black man, I'm not going to limit myself from telling those stories because I still feel the same connection. Um, I still feel um, that I'm able to tell them. And even though I might not experience, you know, the, the hostility, I have, I, I do experience similar things that, and challenges that, that, that these groups do when I do come out. Like when I do come out, I'm like, oh, this is interesting, you know. And so I do know people have these hostilities born, uh, born from uh, an expectation or a, a, like the way they see you. So I have a line, for instance, in the, in the, in the, in the one-man show. It's like, if I don't tell you who I am, then who are you really meeting? You know, if you get to tell me who I am, then I'm just basically fitting a profile that you want me to fit in your mind. And, and, and that's really, that's the challenge right now, I think, with, with society as a whole, is that we should be able to respect what the other person um, is, you know, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Sikh, it, uh, straight, gay, bisexual, pansexual. Like, we need to be able to hear what, who they are when we meet them. And so the thing is, is that we can't go, like, I don't want to, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. You're going to be this because this is how I see you. And now, oh, oh you're that? Okay, so uh, I don't think I'm going to be friends with you. I don't know that that is a genuine way to exist in the world. Um, but that's kind of the model that we have with socialization. You know, like if we really knew everything about someone, um, we might not want to talk to them. And it's about compassion. It's about having compassion. Um, and we learn when we meet people, I think it's about learning about them. It's not about just knowing who they are. When you meet someone, you have to also know that you're going to be learning about them. Um, and so I think that that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, would it stop the violence against black trans people, black trans women? I doubt it. Um, I, again, that just speaks to the expectation that in order to be a female, you have to be feminine. And I just know that that's bullshit. <clears throat> you know, there are women who are cis who are not feminine. And yet because they have a, a sex organ that is uh, of a female, then, okay, we'll give them a pass. I think that that's wrong to identify somebody's gender based on their sex organ, you know? I think that we're more than just a sex organ, <laughs> you know? We're human beings. We're whole beings. And um, I've had to, I had to really relearn a lot of things, you know, even myself. Like, I was, I was telling my partner, like, you know, she's, she's, she's um, I used to like really high semi girls, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> nails, long nails, all of that. Like, I was so into that. And, you know, I just didn't see the, the, 
the beauty, or I didn't really appreciate the beauty in women who didn't overly, like, dress themselves up, you know? But then as I got older, I was like, you know, that's just a, a shell. That's not who they are, you know? It's a shell. And to see, like, who the person is, because even if you were to be attracted to that person who, like, let's say on the material side, like the, the, the vein part, like, the, is really pretty, even that, it takes about two years for the other shoe to drop, and even that look doesn't hold. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It just, it won't hold you, because you're really going for that person that, 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 that loves to do the same things you do. Like, that's really for me, I think that that's the true connection, and, and that's when I see people. That's true love, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that's, when I say true love, I don't mean just in a romantic sense. I mean true love in terms of true love, in terms of friendship, in terms of family. Yeah, I've had my own bloodline turn against me when they found out about coming out mm-hmm. of when I told them I was trans. I mean, nasty. <laughs> like, very, very bad. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> it's just like family. And so it just, it's, um, but I had to have compassion even for that, you know, I have to, I have to understand that that's just where they are and that's not who I am. And I just, all I offer is that, well, if you ever want, I'm not going to change who I am. So it's on you. The door is open. If you ever want to come back into my orbit, you absolutely can, <laughs> you know, but, but the galaxy is wide. <laughs> you can keep drifting if you need to. But, but the orbit is always open, and I think that's important. Yeah. Wow, it's been a really, really wonderful conversation, you know, um, with you, Skylar. Um, yeah, about about more than <laughs> a one-man show, <laughs> but just about, you know, just, you know, about art and about being, about presence. And, and I want our audience know um, that, that, and and I heard you say that your your work is just an hour long. Like really? Yeah. Well, we we might like, be a little wow. over an hour. Is that too long? <laughs> okay. Is that is that is oh, that long? Oh no, I was or just thinking. I I just I just thought, you know, considering all that you've told us about it, I thought it was gonna be like, I mean, you know, ninety minutes or so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, it yeah, was. Yeah. 